You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. You've seen this place. Only in dreams. Who are you? Welcome, everybody, to the 602 Club. I am one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and we're live from Canto Bite tonight. Uh, we've got a private room. It's fantastic. Really loving the uh, fantastic Corellian brandy that they're serving here. And I have assembled the Jedi Council to talk about The Last Jedi. And I'm so excited to do that tonight because this is also going to be the last episode, I think, maybe for the year. Maybe. Like, I don't know. I don't remember. Anyway. Um, but this is there's too much in my brain right now I've been thinking about for the last few days as The Last Jedi has come out. And as I mentioned, the Jedi Council is here. And with me, uh, I couldn't do it without him, Bruce Gibson. Hello. I just wrote in on my father and I'm exhausted right now, but I'm so ready to talk to you. Oh, oh goodness. Um, well, hopefully you treated your father better than they do at Canto Bike. I do, would... I do. Okay, excellent. Um, and, of course, uh, a, a man who needs no introduction, Jedi Master John Mills. Oh, well, well, thank you. I came here uh, in an escape pod from uh, a First Order Dreadnought uh, because we had some wacky shenanigans go on with the Resistance, and it was the only way safely out of there. That's so. weird because I got here on an escape pod from Millennium Falcon. Well, there you go. Yeah. So why like is Bruce I, they, riding yeah. in style and we're the ones in the Ooh, skate yeah, pods here? No this kidding. is a little fishy. It's a little fishy, Bruce. <laughs> I'm looking for a plume. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, before we dive into the show, of course, you know you can find us all over the place, but iTunes is really the best place to go where we are featured provider there. It's iTunes.com slash Trek FM. Uh, you can find all the shows that we do, but of course, the 602 Club. And while you're there, hit us up with a star rating review. Help the show grow. Um, it really does make all the difference. And I love getting to share your reviews here on the show. Um, you can say whatever you want to about the show. And I will let you and everybody else know what you said. So go over there, give us that star rating and review. 
You can find us on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We have our listeners-only discussion group on Facebook, and that's called the Babel Conference. Now, if you're on Facebook, type Babel into the search field, and you'll find us. Or if you go to the website at Trek.FM, you can click Discussion on any of the show pages menu bars, and that'll bring you over to the discussion group, and you can join in all the conversations we're having there. And last but not least, um, if you've got something on your chest, you want to get it off, and you need to do it in more long form, maybe a little bit more private, and you don't want everybody to know, or you just have something you really want to share about the show and maybe have us read it on the show, uh, go over to trek.fm slash contact and choose the show. Choose the 602 Club. That'll come to me and any host that was on that week, and we can converse with you that way, and maybe it's something that's so cool, we got to share it on the show. So go over and do that. I love getting emails from the listeners. So Gentlemen, uh, we have way too much to talk about, to, to dalliance about things that aren't really important, like how we saw the movie. We all saw it. Um, I saw it three times. John, how many times do you see it? As of this recording, I have seen it once. Okay. And Bruce, what about you? I've seen it three. Okay. Um, so we've got that out of the way. You know how we saw it. I wanted to get to something that I was and have been thinking about the, the, with this movie like crazy. And and that's the kind of this idea of like history and context. And when The Force Awakens came out, one of the things that I had, I would say an issue with was the history and context of The Force Awakens next to, you know, the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy and how it all tied in and the fact that this had been 30 years and we didn't really know what had happened and I you know we talked it through and both of you are like well it's the first one it'll be fine you know um, and now that we have this second movie I wanted to ask you both how you feel about this because I'm having a really tough time with this idea of history and context especially after The Last Jedi and how this plays into almost every single character's arc Every single plot point in this movie, I don't know. Help me out here. Am I just making something out of nothing, or what do you think? All right. Now, I do. We have had um, numerous conversations about you know the the Force Awakens, and you know, oh, it's okay for the gap. Oh, I wish there wasn't a gap. Oh, I wish they weren't filling in. But the Force Awakens always was the the pitch, and then it was always presumed the next film in the series would be, you know, the hit. And I can't disagree with you that while a piece of personal history, a couple of pieces of personal history come out, what seems to have been promised from the force awakens was not followed through uh, completely. The threads were not tugged sufficiently does that mean in and of itself that the film is a failure because of that no but I'm just saying that I agree with the point that there was a lot of setup there were a lot of hints of this might have significance that like there were a lot of you know as has been said you know J.J. Abrams and the mystery box there were a lot of mystery boxes laid out there and it comes across as if several of them were opened with nothing in them, and others of them said, eh, we're just not going to open that, that's fine, whatever, and just sort of tossed to the side. Yeah, and Matt, I know that you're uh, 
complaint one of your complaints about the force awakens was the world building and and what's been going on in the history of the galaxy and what's been happening with the new republic and and of course some of that has come out in some of the ancillary materials but it really should be addressed in the movie it's it's not anything that i really missed that much i'd like to have more of it in the force awakens and now that we're into the last jedi i didn't miss it because I felt as if that we know that the New Republic has been, for all intents and purposes, destroyed. And in the crawl, it says that the First Order is trying to take hold of the galaxy now, take its place. So I pictured in my mind, even when I read the crawl, that the First Order is kind of scattered throughout the galaxy and trying to take its place. Uh, and and the, one, the one counterpoint I'll immediately offer to that is that I remember with... Phantom Menace, because, you know, let's do like for like here. I have a friend who hammered on the fact that you didn't see any particular suffering on the part of the Naboo. It's alluded to our people are suffering, our people are dying, but it doesn't really come across. And I always said, well, you know, it's a PG movie. What They're not going to show slaves being beaten in the streets and stuff like that. It's like, you know, you can sort of fill that in. With this, there is... It's in the crawl. Oh, the first order is pushing forward, but I almost wonder if the the issue might be tied to the fact that this takes place immediately after the Force Awakens. And so, if you come into it, and I appreciate that there's some time that has elapsed, maybe I would have gone easier into it, saying, "Oh, well, they've had time. And they're going around. They're just hammering everybody across the galaxy." But this is immediately afterward, and the Star Killer base has been destroyed. And it's treated as if it's not really any sort of thing. It's just, yeah, well, whatever. They lost it, but they're going out and they're winning anyway. And it's just, it just seems to undercut some of the importance of what happened in The Force Awakens to just breeze past that immediately afterward. The thing that that I really came to is, look, if I hear one more person tell me, well, then the original trilogy didn't, but the original trilogy... I think when you look at those movies and you watch those movies, and I remember watching them for the first time as a kid, and I kind of immediately get the story, and that's because Lucas is working in archetype, something that is so ingrained into us, even from a young age of understanding archetype, correct? So things don't have to be so explained because instinctively as you watch the story you understand who the characters are you understand what's going on in the galaxy all because it's based off an archetype and then as we move forward each film has the context of the last film to work off of and they do that very well and then the pt does the same thing the 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 prequel trilogy builds on what we know of the original series characters and where they're going to end up to build back into that the archetype of the fall of a republic which again is something that people I think generally kind of understand but I also think that as I watch through the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy I feel like one of the things that George Lucas excels at is not just telling us something's happening but showing us it happens Because take the prequel trilogy, for example. We're told that there's corruption and all these things happening 
in the Senate and in the Republic, and George specifically shows us those things. He shows us the illegal blockade in Naboo. People might find that boring, but he's showing us that the the Republic as we know it is beginning to crumble under the weight. Like, there's not telling, they're showing. And I feel like a lot of things, especially that happen in The Force Awakens, and now, specifically with The Last Jedi, we just get told stuff. We get told that the First Order is taking over the all, the entire galaxy, even though I don't have a context for understanding yet, in any way, shape, or form, how big the First Order is. Like, I don't know, because they've never told me. Like, ever. How big the First Order is. When we're watching the original trilogy, right? The Empire... It's the Empire. It controls the entire galaxy. It says it in the crawl. The First Order, I don't know the size of the First Order or any of those kind of things. So I feel like there's a lot of things that they just kind of tell me that they don't show me. And it, it as I walk through the movie, almost, I, I, honestly, almost every character and every plot line suffers from this issue. You know, I, I would almost say that maybe what what is at play here is naming convention. Because when you say the word empire and have an emperor, I immediately make, to speak to your point about archetype, they don't need to show me the empire dominating everybody because they say exactly. empire and my brain immediately says empire is large and controls all. First right. order doesn't say anything to me outside of oh these are the people nope. in the last movie that were revealed to be fanatical adherents to right the you know the, the the ideals of the empire and stuff like that and it's i i really do think that it it is solely the fact that it doesn't come across in this film that they were concerned solely with the idea of carrying through what happened in the previous. There is a narrative thread that goes through the original trilogy, the prequel trilogy that ties everything together. And there are personal stories that tie together in the force awakens and the last Jedi, but there's sort of a larger story arc that seems disconnected. And you know, I, I think that, there are any number of things you could you can throw at it, but this is the first time, regardless of you know your opinion of the films or or anything like that, where the film felt story wise disconnected from what came before. That was the impression I was left with. Oh my gosh, this is really making me think differently about things now. So, uh, <laughs> and and I think I always felt it and thought of it, but it didn't bother me too much. But I see where you guys are coming from. Uh, you know, with the Empire, you know what the Empire is. I feel like I know that the First Order is not controlling the whole galaxy right now. At least that's what I assume. Maybe it has more control. I don't. And again, yeah, I agree. I don't know how big it is. I don't even know exactly where they were hiding. If anything that I got out of The Force Awakens was where were they hiding? Where'd they come from? Obviously, Snoke was there too. And that's. See, I'm already going to my biggest complaint about this movie, which I don't have that many complaints, but the whole Snoke thing, I don't know anything about him. And I feel like Snoke and the First Order are all kind of tied together. And it's like, how did they just come about and have this power and bring 
Ben Solo over to the dark side and join them. They just kind of just, they're just there. It's almost as if, as you're talking through this, I'm thinking you have a new hope and it's the seed that is planted that grows into a tree. And these other movies that came after New Hope are their brand, are the branches off of a new hope. And then we go into The Force Awakens and it's not a branch off the tree. It's just a new tree growing up next to it. And we're not necessarily getting all the branches that we need to give us the backstory that the prequels gave us for the original trilogy. I like yeah. that imagery, Bruce. I really it's a like really that. really good yeah. Because yeah. Jedi's and, like trees, by the yep. way. Yeah, well, and apparently. I think I think you're absolutely right, Bruce, because that's the other thing that that frustrates me about this trilogy. It, and I think that's a great way to show kind of that disconnect. It just kind of feels like another tree growing in the same forest. But we're used to it being the same tree so that they all come back to the same root, like they all come back to the same trunk. This one feels like, yeah, I love, I think that's an absolutely fantastic analogy. And and just something else that is bothered me too, and it's something that we have talked, bo- all three of us, very specifically about, this idea of things being in ancillary materials that should be in the film. I mean, you know, I, I, I thought through, okay, let's think of this historically. The rebel generation, uh, you know, brings out this, this new republic, right? Um, but we know from the ancillary materials that it kind of quickly devolves into kind of almost this like pre prequel feeling where the government becomes kind of ineffectual. It's split into centrists and populists and, you know, the first orders on the rise and, and unchallenged because, you know, Hey, relax. They're not really a threat, you know? Um, and nobody wants to take them seriously and greed and corruption keep coming back into the galaxy and Leia is the only one who sees this as a problem and creates the resistance. But none of that comes from any part of any of these two films. All of that came from what I had to read in like like six, seven different sources. And so I think that's the frustrating thing is like there is so much of this story that's not actually part of the movies and I feel bad for the people who haven't read all this, the ancillary material. So they, the story is not really there for them to get. Um, and, and you have to really start to kind of like, okay, okay, let me kind of put myself into like maybe a political mindset for like today. Maybe that's where they're going with this. or You know, like you really have to start to think about this stuff to have it make sense where as the other movies – that like you said, Bruce, they all branched off of New Hope, and and um, they you know the first trilogy really uses archetypes, and the second trilogy builds out from that first one so much so that it makes complete sense to watch it. And this one you would have thought would have been like that third branch to grow off, you know, from a New Hope, and but it's not. It it, it just you know so, something else I want to say, and you know obviously we're we're already deep in spoiler territory and everything, but the plot line of the slow motion chase does nothing to add to the idea of the menace of the first order. If the first no, it makes order, them look really dumb. If the first order is a menace, is a real threat, is hammering the galaxy to shreds. Okay, the Empire Strikes Back made it very clear in the opening reels that the Empire wasn't there to play. And when they dropped the hammer, they were going to drop it hard. 
I cannot for the life of me imagine a situation wherein Darth Vader patiently just lobbed volleys just to harass somebody. I mean, it doesn't make them seem powerful that they have the most powerful ship in their fleet and they're just throwing little missiles. Do, do, do. And it, yeah, I don't think they're as more power. I don't think they're as powerful as the Empire, just like Kylo Ren yeah. is flawed against Darth Vader. Right, but but how am I supposed to buy that they're taking over the galaxy immediately after The Force Awakens if they oh, can't no, I wipe take it out? As they're trying to take over the galaxy. They mm-hmm. haven't necessarily taken over the galaxy. I don't know. That title crawl really made it seem as if they were having great success. Yeah, well, and and if you listen to the the dialogue we get from Ray as she's telling Luke, she's like, they'll own every all the major systems in weeks. That's what she tells Luke. So it's like this is a big deal. But yeah, you're absolutely right, John. The first order just seems like complete nincompoops the entire time because it's like they've got like thirty ships trailing this, you know, this one little cruiser, like literally trailing them. Like guys. It's space. Just jump ahead of them if you have to. And, like, face them on that. Like, you... there, There's absolutely 100% zero logic in what's happening with this. I mean, Speed 2 has more logic to it in its stupid chase scene with a, with a cruise ship than this has in any way, shape, or form. And so, uh, to me, it makes, like, the entire time the First Order comes off looking like the worst copy of the empire you've ever seen like like i feel like it's almost like a robot chicken version of the of the empire i i am you know i am going to i i apologize jump in right there but i think that that is a great call because hux who was one of my favorite new creations oh, you mean general hugs huh? i'll hold yeah General Hugs, yes, I'll hold. Right. I'll hold. I'll hold. It's about your mom. This film manages to take Hux, who seemed like a deranged uh, proto-Hitler type of character in the in the Force Awakens, who I really enjoyed watching. I was like, wow, this guy yeah, is over-the-top evil. And then in this one, he's this bumbling fool. And it's it's almost as disorienting as to call to another Lucasfilm franchise when Brody shows up in Last Crusade and all of a sudden this fine, refined professor issuing these wise warnings to Indy and Raiders of the Lost Ark is this boob going through Last Crusade. Like, it, it's that much of a reversal to me. I, it, it was disorienting. It was disorienting. And I think it undercuts the First Order again. I don't know, but that's what I like about it. I mean, I like that the First Order isn't as powerful as the Empire. I mean, I do feel like they're you know, trying to be something that they're not. And that's what I like because I don't want another empire. I don't want the same things we've seen in other movies. I want to see these guys who think they're all badass and that they are the empire fail, just like Kylo Ren thinks he's the next Darth Vader and he's not. I like that they're flawed and they're kind of stupid idiots and it makes it kind of fun. I don't think, I mean, we'll see in episode nine, but I mean, I think they're going to fail miserably. I'd like to see them be somewhat confident is all I'm saying. Like it, it's fine if they fail and it's fine if they're a copy and it's, it's fine if they're, you know, they're not as good as the empire. They're a mere echo and, and all of those sorts of things. But I, I don't know. It really it is. It also just then that, makes our heroes look stupid and weak 
on the same side. I, like, on the other side of that coin, like, if you do that with the First Order, right, it really makes our heroes kind of look even worse when you start to think about the First Order in those that context, that they're having such a problem then with the these just yeah. complete nincompoops. Yeah, and, and like, Bruce, I, I get what you're saying. I do get what you're saying, but I just think all I'm saying is I don't think you have an invalid point or an invalid read. All I'm saying is that I wish they had dialed it back a little bit so that it wasn't so clownish. That's all I'm saying. Just yeah. a little bit And back. I think that's one of the problems that uh, we have here in cinema when it comes to these big tentpole movies is they want to appeal to the general audience and make this fun and almost take it i don't want to say they're not taking it as seriously but they're trying to have more fun with it so the audience has fun yeah that's a i mean that's a good point and i think you have something there because you know uh, let's just call it out i think lucas always specifically was telling his story right and he didn't care how the audience was going to respond he wanted them to like it but he was just telling his the story he wanted to tell and here, I think you're absolutely right, Bruce, to call out that one of the things that we're having is Disney wants to sell billions of dollars worth of tickets, and they're trying to find the formula to do that. And it's not so much, I don't think as much, about um, telling necessarily the most cohesive story that they could because, well, they're not doing that. Uh, and to call out another franchise that I think did it right. The the model of, I, I understand the point of we're trying to sell tickets, we're trying to get people in the seats, but people responded pretty well to The Dark Knight. And that wasn't, I mean, it had a character called the Joker, but he wasn't jokey, really. His jokes were kind of awful. But it was really that sort of thing. People will respond to the material if it's solid. And to follow the jokey line is the Marvel formula and I've seen it before and I want if they're going to break new ground and change things up I don't want it just to become the superhero franchise with lightsabers you know yeah well that's what more than likely is going to happen I think but I think the difference between the Dark Knight and the Star Wars movies is they probably didn't do a focus group for The Dark Knight, but they've probably done some focus groups for the new Star Wars movies. Oh, I'm sure. I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And I think that this is the thing that um, when we're talking about the idea of context and history, I think this is the biggest issue that I see in this film um, and, and with the, the Force Awakens, too. And you put them together because they're going to make a trilogy. Is look, writing 101... If you don't know the past and the future of your characters, you absolutely 100% cannot write their present. And because nobody knows the past of these characters, they don't know the future of these characters, they're struggling each time to tell their present because they don't know where they're going. And and, and any work of literature or any film... Um, it's clear to see that the best characters that move through progressive films, their stories are best told by somebody who already knew that created them where they were going so that they knew how to what plot points they needed to move them through to get them there. 
But you can tell, obviously, look at every character in this movie, Snoke, Ray, Ben, even Luke. We don't really know where they've been or we've discounted where they've been, <laughs> like Luke. Um, and so, and and then Ray and Ben and Snoke and Phasma and Finn and all these characters, we don't know where they're going. So none of the plot points that you need to truly, like uh, the best example I can think of is Harry Potter right now because it's very, it's still current. People understand it. J.K. Rowling knew from the very beginning how her story ended. She knew exactly where Harry was going to go. Um, she had everything outlined. She worked for a few years to get the outline just right. Now, there were some details that changed in there, right? Um, she's come out and said, you know, there were certain characters I thought might die, but then they didn't end up dying, and then there were other characters I thought were going to live that did die. That kind of stuff. Some of those things happened, but the the structure stayed the same and it shows when you read her story, it's an intricately woven piece of, of literary genius that all the puzzle pieces all fall into places you read through the series. This, I can tell, my wife was like, it just feels like they're jamming puzzle pieces together, trying to get them to fit. And you kind of end up with that Frankenstein puzzle that your kid put together where none of the pieces fit. They looked like they fit, but they don't really fit. And then the picture is just like, well, it's definitely not the picture in the box. Because <laughs> we don't have a box. We don't know what the picture is. You know what? Since, since Bruce has used trees and you've used puzzles, what I'll say is that this is sort of like a building. You have to have a blueprint before you can start pouring a single cubic centimeter of concrete. And what this feels like instead is that they said, let's just build a one-story building. It's like in an office park. That's great. Oh, hey, you know what? We really like this. Okay, let's add a second story. Sure, what do you want to do with it? Well, you know, we, we know rough outlines here. Let's let's just put it on. And so it it's a single building, but it's very obviously, and there are buildings, uh, you know, because I, I come from the D.C. metro area. There are buildings where you can literally see where one part of the building was built this time and the other part of the building was added on. And they have to follow the same rough form but they don't conform to the same aesthetic. You can tell that one set of designers worked on this part of the building and one set of the designers worked on that part of the building. And the it can be a, a very fun and different sort of way to look at a building, and it certainly can make the skyline interesting, but you don't get the sense of they knew what they were doing when they were putting that together. So that's just my way of piling on because everybody else had an analogy or a metaphor or whatever you want to call it, and I wanted one too, so there. Well, I mean, I feel like that's the problem I've had with a lot of movies recently that are sci-fi, fantasy, all that genre type of movies. I feel like they're trying to pack so much information, not even not information, but so many different scenes, so many twists and turns, so so many elements to a movie that the story gets lost or they're trying to do too much story and so they have to eject background information 
so they can get the whole story in. So go into your analogy, John. It's almost like I'm thinking like you have a piece of property and people used to build a building on the piece of property to fit. Now you have that same piece of property, but you're trying to build a lot of building onto it. So you have to sacrifice some things because you're getting so much building onto that property. There's not enough room for the bathrooms. So we're not even going to build bathrooms. We're just, people just assume that there's bathrooms there. Right. You know, it's, yes. like, it's almost to me like that's what's happening in a lot of movies today. And I did, did feel at times when I watched it, especially the first time, things felt a little disjointed and a little confusing. And of course, you know, then you hear everybody saying like, oh, we'll go see a second time. It makes more sense or it starts to settle in. And you shouldn't have to see a movie multiple times to get it. Absolutely agree with you. 100%. You should be able, I, uh, you know, I referred to Dark Knight before. I walked out of Dark Knight on my phone calling my brother and everybody else. You got to see this movie. It's amazing. And I saw it a second time and there were things that worked even better but i didn't walk out of it saying i really need to see that a second time to figure out exactly what the joker's motivations were yeah so you're absolutely right bruce you know I, and and i i always like to be constructively critical so constructively i think th- that the the mistake here was not getting in a room with all three of the people that you wanted to have as directors making them sit down with their writers all together and figure out what the bleep they wanted to do with this. So that as J.J. was working on Force Awakens, he might be the only one in the room that knows, but he can talk to Daisy. He can talk to, to, to um, John. He can talk to all of these, these actors and give them hints on how he wants them to, to, to portray a scene because he knows where they're going to go, right? Um same thing then that Ryan could do in this film. He would have been able to then do all of those things for the next film, but everything would have felt more cohesive. I I want to say I think the biggest problem is is, is that you put Mystery Box Man uh, in charge of episode, the, the first episode of this, and J.J.'s not good at figuring out his own mystery boxes. Oh, he, whoa, whoa, whoa. He, Hold he on. lots of times doesn't even know what's in them. Like, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to throw a challenge flag on that. You cannot blame J.J. Abrams for the shortcomings of a movie he didn't direct, which is what's no, happening. No, 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 no. I'm just saying, I, I, I'm, I'm being, I'm saying constructively, though, I think this is, this is just the, the issue with not allowing or not having everybody work together to create something that hasn't cohesive whole, because in the end, all of the issues that we're talking about stem from the fact that there's no direction for the trilogy because there's no clear plan or end game. And so what you're left with is everybody with each installment trying to figure out how to make sense of the last one and where to go next. And then building on top of that. And like you said, John, you just kind of end up with a really weird building or you end up with a you know, another tree, as Bruce said, or you end up with a puzzle that doesn't look like a picture because you never had a picture in the first place. Um, and I think, you know, th- that is something that Star Wars has never had before because obviously it was always George before and it was coming from one person. So for the most part, I think you can look at the prequel trilogy, the original trilogy, and things tend to be 
much more cohesive. Can we point out a couple of things that might not completely line up or, you know, like, yeah, we can we can do that, right? But for the most part, it does make a pretty cohesive, like, say, at least just take the films, a six-film series. But to, to Bruce's point here, right, like, isn't there... I don't know. I, I mean, I, I wind up looking at these other franchises. Isn't there supposed to be, with these very superhero franchises we're talking about, isn't there supposed to be some sort of ma- like timeline plan in place? Like, they at least know with the Avengers movies where they're going to end. They had to end up at Infinity War. And maybe yeah. that's why the Marvel movies resonate even when you get a, a, you know, a dud here and there is because it feels like it's a part of that larger plan. And so maybe this is what's magnifying the, any of the complaints that we might have about The Last Jedi is we're not confident. Like, it's one thing to sit down and have a structural issue with a film or a story issue. But if you know it's a part of a series and you say this is dangling here, you can say, huh, you know what? At least I know in the next one they're going to resolve this. I just feel like Poe yelling at Haldo, tell me you've got a plan. Just tell me you've got a plan. And, but you know what? Yeah. I know they don't have a plan because you know what? Ryan Johnson says he still doesn't know who Ray's parents are. Yeah. He doesn't know if this will end up being the truth about Ray's parents. You know, so it's like, uh, I know from the background because they're telling us we don't really have a plan. We're just making this S up as we go along. And, and when it comes to to what we've been used to, and this is, I'm just saying, what we've been used to in Star Wars, and maybe we, we just need to let that go, you know? But we have been used to a more cohesive, well-thought-out, well-structured story point, uh, something that is really connected to each other because it is coming from one guy who has been spending his entire life putting all this together. Um, and nobody understands it better than him because... It is him. It comes from him, right? Um, I like to think of it as like George was like Tolkien. If you wanted to know anything about Lord of the Rings, you asked the man who created it because it was intricately woven into who Tolkien was because it poured out of him just the way Star Wars poured out of George. And now without that person there, we are left with other people trying to figure out... um, it's kind of like other people writing Dune, right? Or any of these big, massive things. It's like, you can get close, right? Or, and I think, um, you know, I'd say, uh, get Filoni on the phone. If you really want to fix this, 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 this idea of like story stuff, because nobody in the world understands Star Wars better than Dave Filoni when it comes to, you know I mean? Obviously, George is the master he always will be. But next to him, the ultimate apprentice is Dave Filoni, and nobody understands Star Wars better than Dave. But see, uh, that that's, that's where I think I have a bit of an issue with these movies, that I have somewhat of a lower expectation. And it's not that I don't like these directors, but when I used to go into every Star Wars movie back when the original trilogy was coming out, I did feel that George Lucas had a plan. Like when I would see a movie, I'd, I'd think, I want, you know, wonder what's coming up in the next movie, as if it's already been decided. 
I remember thinking that. And then when the prequels are coming out, it's like, okay, this is that backstory that George Lucas has had written in some journal somewhere for years, for 16 years, or in the back of his head, and he's always had these things in mind. And I found out over time it wasn't, you know, all planned out exactly, or he made some changes, but there were some plans in there. Now when I go into these movies, and like when I came out of this one, I don't think, oh, I wonder what the plan is for the next one. I'm just looking at this more like, okay, so... What is J.J. going to do now? He sees this. He's going to say, "Okay, hmm, what should I do next with this? And it's like you're saying there's no plan. So I don't have this expectation that we're going to find out more information that we didn't get in these last two movies because there isn't a journal. There isn't in the back of somebody's head. I would like I hope and I that I just hope that Lucasfilm Kathleen Kennedy has somewhat of a plan sketched out. But see, that's that's I don't know. My wife, um, we watched Empire the other day, um, and, and then we were starting Return of the Jedi. And at the end of Empire, she looked at me and she goes, the thing about this movie is that all the plot point there are all these plot points that I know are going to get picked up on, right? Like, when this movie ends, I'm left with these things left hanging. And I know that the movie is going to answer those things that are left hanging because, well, one, Return of the Jedi is the last one. Um, but two, like, that's how each film was kind of set up in, in the original trilogy. And then the same thing happened in the prequel trilogy. Um, I thought that that was kind of going to be the way we did it with, and you know, The Force Awakens left, you know, these hanging threads. But when you wa- as I'm watching The Last Jedi, I'm like, okay, well, that thread was irrelevant and that one really didn't matter and, and this one doesn't make sense now. And, like, it, you know, like, you're waiting for them to continue taking those threads and weaving them into the Star Wars tapestry. And, wow, I got to say, this tapestry is, is starting to look freaky. I'm still hoping we'll get that in episode nine. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, Chris Terrio has uh, a heck of a task, uh, just because like, you know, at the end of this, it wasn't just my reaction to the film, but like with where the story stops at the end of Empire, at the end of Attack of the Clones, even at the end of like the end of this felt more like the end of Return of the Jedi. OK, this right. is wrapped up. I don't I don't see where they're going to I don't see why this needs to be a trilogy. This is duology. OK, we, like we can end here. It's done. It's finished. And you, and you made your points and everything's done. That's not necessarily a detriment to a film a great film can stand on its own that doesn't mean that i reject it because of that but i'm just saying that like knowing that there's an episode nine coming it's weird because why there doesn't need to be like this is done luke's story is done the skywalkers are done the jedi are done everything's wrapped up but at the same time to speak to what we we've been talking about snoke is dead but i still don't know like, nobody even had any dialogue. Like, Snoke had already influenced him. Go on. Like, it's not an unfair expectation to say, I would like to know maybe a little of the mechanics because you've made this. It's not important in the original trilogy to know how the Emperor turned Vader, just that he did. In this, it is integral to the story to know how somebody outfoxed Luke freaking Skywalker to influence his own nephew while he was under training. That is a tricky thing, I would imagine. 
So we can't have some little fleshing out, even when he's torturing Ray, to say, oh, and by the way, you know, I did this and this. And that's why I know I can beat Luke Skywalker. That sort yeah, of thing. Let him monologue nice. a little bit. Like, you know, get that, that uh, villain monologue going before yeah. he dies. Yes, it, it, well, it would have been nice. I, and I agree because in the original trilogy, I really didn't care who the Emperor was or really what his story was when I saw it. And like you said, he turned, you know, Anakin Skywalker into Vader. And that's all, all I really needed to know. But George Lucas went back and made the prequel trilogy. And now we have all those answers. So when you watch episodes one through six, now we've been trained to know that we get backstory and we get answers. And so when we go into this, all of a sudden it's like, well, wait, we spent six movies learning what the Palpatine did, what Vader did, and how they got to where they are and what their goal was and how things turned around. And now I go into this movie and I don't need to know any of that for these guys. The problem is, and I came to this today, is that this one trilogy is trying to do what the prequel trilogy and the original trilogy did at the same time. You can't do that. You're, you're saying it's you're, too, you're much, trying it's to too tell much story the, for this. Yeah, you're trying to tell the same amount of story in one trilogy that you did in two trilogies before. So, and, and, and the main problem is, is that... Um, Again, the foundation that they laid with The Force Awakens didn't give us enough foundation for what the state of the galaxy is and all of these things. 30 years is a long time to not have, you know, a anything happen uh, that we know about. The, be the great thing about what George did with the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy is that the span between the uh, prequel trilogy and the original trilogy has an empire ruling. It, you don't need any filler. Like, you get right. that. That the, the empire took over, and, like, that's the story, is that the empire is continually crushing the galaxy until the point where somebody was like, I've had enough. And they yeah. stand up, and they create, create a rebellion. There's no... You don't need an explanation, because we all get that, because that's been in literature and in our myths and our stories forever. This is a whole new thing. You know, everything that they're doing with the the First Order and, and this New Republic and everything and its fall, this is all new stuff. Like, but there's no context. There's no history for it because they haven't given us anything. So they're trying to tell a story that's supposed to have some weight, but I have no context or historical reference for why any of this matters and you bringing up Snoke is perfect because he's like the vaguest phantom menace ever. And by the time yeah. he dies, he feels just completely irrelevant. Yeah. Like, okay. So he turned Ben to the dark. All right. But you're right. Like, how did he do that? Like, uh, how did he know Ben in the first place? How did he get to be a part of the first order? Like, how did he connect with the First Order? Uh, how did he become their supreme leader? Like, why does anybody care about this Snoke dude whatsoever? Like, he seems pretty powerful in the Force. He is so powerful like, because the only reason these movies exist is because of his actions. Yes. 
The only Correct. reason Ben Solo went to the dark side and joined the First Order and the First Order exists and all the things that have happened with Luke are all because of what Snoke started. And yet we get nothing on Snoke. Except for the fact that he looks fabulous in a bathrobe. Oh. I mean, he's like the Hugh Hefner of the, you know, First Order. I will. Well, I, I will never also... knew that much about Hugh Hefner either. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will also give uh, give them a lot of credit. So long as we're talking about Snoke. I like his decorating sense. It's very simple. He likes color. And I'm a big fan. Very nice. Yeah, I want his slippers. They look really comfortable. Yeah, well, although he so. needs a manicure. Just going to throw that out there yeah. for you. But, you know, yeah. I, I will say that when it comes to Star Wars movies, I always look at them as, as the whole saga is under construction. Star Wars is still under construction. I'm hoping in Episode Nine. We're going to get information, not just on what we just talked about, but even the Knights of Ren. And it was even revealed that when Ben took down the Jedi Temple, he took some of the Je- some Jedi with him, which I'm assuming are part of the Knights of Ren. And, uh, and what is a Ren? And like, I, it's like, I'm hoping that by episode nine, all of a sudden we're like, okay, you know, we're kind of taking it backwards and not finding out information in the beginning, but finding out in the end. I, I think you just brought up the, another awful point for this that is a ding at this movie like the knights of ren like where are they why aren't they around like they're supposed to be ben's posse right like they're his like it, it but they're nowhere to be seen well like i think the the problem is that he's referred to in the force awakens as the master of the knights of ren as if snoke doesn't rule the knights of ren it's like like you said it, it's ben and his posse and they report to snoke but Ben has some authority. I tried to ameliorate that in my brain a little bit by saying maybe those Praetorian guards are the Knights of Ren. Like they're Snoke's honor corps because he's only going to train one of them at a time. But does that make Snoke a Sith? And the thing is that like I think that a lot of people will jump on that and say does it matter if he's a Sith? Does it matter if he's this? Does it matter if he's that? Well, by this point, yes, it does, because it ties specifically into Luke's motivations about what happened with the Jedi and the Sith. And like what happened between them really influences is because that was a big question after The Force Awakens. Is he in fact a Sith? Is are the Knights of Ren like a coterie that goes around with the Sith apprentice and Snoke is the Sith Lord. You can't escape that, especially if you're going to drop Darth Sidious's name in this film. Like he's the he and the Sith are relevant again. So is Snoke a Sith? That's never answered authoritatively. And it just the only reason I would even think about it is I don't get even a couple of lines of dialogue. You know, Ben took a weekend off from Jedi training and he ran across Snoke at Canto Bite and that's how they know each other. Okay, well, at least I got that. That's fine. At least I know how they have a connection. Well, and and one of the things, so why can't you just explain very, very quickly that obviously Snoke has incredible mental powers through the Force, right? Like he's able to do all these amazing things mentally to people. Just, just allude to the fact that Snoke has been, had been connecting with Ben mentally. Maybe he had been telecommuting just like Luke does to Crate. 
uh, you know, through the <laughs> right. force. Or like, he had that's a Vulcan mind been, meld with him. Uh, right. Anything. Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, uh, you know, three lines of dialogue would have helped us understand this connection. You know, even uh, they, they already do the flashback, right? Like, why not, like, at least have, like, why not have Snoke be sitting in Ben's room when Luke comes to beat him? Or something. Something that makes that moment even, like, so, have even more power than, I mean, we'll talk about that moment later on. But, like, I'm just saying, just to fix the, the Ben-Snoke relationship so I kind of understand it more and how all that happened. And you make Snoke, like, really creepy and important through just a few moments. And it's just like they... Instead, we just cut him in half, and I mean that turns into a great scene. But it, it's just like, but I'm let down by it because after it's over, after the coolness of it is over, I'm like, but now he just feels totally irrelevant. Well, and, and again, to go back to what I was sort of harping on before, the slow motion chase, Snoke's there. If he's yeah. this big malevolent evil, like. Shouldn't he at some point like call in Hux and be like, dude, all right, let, let's end this. OK, let's let's wipe them out. Why are why are you doing the snidely whiplash thing and just like twirling your mustache while they're they're sl- very slowly getting away? I mean, like, you know, if anything, it makes me think of a, a Simpsons episode where, you know, they, they look at it and they say he's very slowly getting away. You know, Snoke Snoke's menace is undercut by the fact that they can't yes. wipe out three ships. It reminds me of Austin Powers where the guy has the steamroller coming at him and he yes. just keeps going, No And he's like it's like you have forty minutes to move, but you're still just standing there going, No Like, come on. Oh Well, I okay, I wanted to keep talking about characters because i mean everything is that we talked about is kind of connected with this idea of history and context but ben i think suffers this same problem with snoke because again he's so ill-defined like we learn that he has this darkness in him but but there's there's nothing else there like like with anakin you get to see that darkness grow from a child, right? You see that happen. We we see that progression. But I don't know anything about Ben Solo. I only know what they tell me. And that again, this is the problem of this trilogy, is it's just telling us stuff instead of showing us stuff. And that's not good enough in film. I need to see that it, it's it's the same reason I didn't connect with, with Han Solo being killed by Ben. You're just telling me their father and son. That doesn't do anything for Error. me if you don't show. I, I need to see more. But I, I feel like it, it gets compounded mm. here because like, okay, so he's got this darkness in him. Okay, I, I get that. But why? Why does he have this darkness in him? Now, now th- this is where I'll diverge with you a little bit. And again, your, your, your cheap shot at Force Awakens. The, the whole Han and Ben thing works just fine. So we, we, let, let's, just, let's just move past that. But the... Um, with this, I will diverge with you a little bit because of the fact that they do the flashback and they show it from the three perspectives, yours, mine, and the truth. And I like the fact that there is this subtext of Luke essentially creates Kylo Ren 
by having his moment of weakness. And it's Ben's perception of that moment that drives him forward instead of him slowing down and saying, wait, is this actually what happened? And not believing or trusting and and all of those sorts of things. So I'll diverge with you a little bit on that, that I do think that Ben's motivation at least becomes a little bit clearer because if I, if my uncle came in and it looked like he was thinking about killing me, that would probably damage our relationship pretty severely. So maybe a little make Christmas awkward at least. Yeah. But I, I think that, yeah, we don't understand why someone in the Skywalker lineage has this, dark side creeping into him especially when he's being mentored by luke skywalker and that's an answer we don't have yes i know what eventually happened that made him kylo ren but what were those things that happened prior to that why did luke is sensing a dark side in him he could feel the dark side growing in ben solo but why what is causing that? We know why Anakin, because we saw the phantom menace. We saw the manipulation the, and, you know, creating lack of trust and, and, and working on his fear. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. What was the fear in Ben Solo? What, I mean, he's under Luke Skywalker's guidance. His mother's, you know, Leia I, I, and Haunt. I mean, I just, again, I'm hoping episode nine gives us more stuff. And 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 she even asks him like, "Why did you hate your father?" He's like, "I didn't hate my father." Right. So what? Like that's not what. It. What is it that causes him to turn to the dark side? Is 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 it just that Ben has decided to be bad, and he damn the consequences? Like I I I choose to be this way because that's what I want to be, and 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 is that their way of saying that yes, you can choose good or evil. I take the line and that, you know, again, this is where I diverge a little bit. And it's, I think it's because I like Kylo Ren's arc in this because it's the most clearly defined and most interesting to me. And so I probably look for ways to defend it or, or what have you. But I took his statement of, I didn't hate my father to mean also conversely, I didn't love him. He's sim- he was simply there and I had to kill him because there's a whole thing where Luke and Kylo have a, you know, they're both saying, forget the past, don't dwell on the past. But Kylo is taking it to mean become a moral because your moral compass doesn't mean anything because it's just about what you can get. Whereas Luke is saying, don't hang up on the past because it will limit you and what you can do. At least I hope that's the, me- the message that they're giving because that's what I got from it and because there is very much I'm looking for that as the thread for why Luke Skywalker who managed to save the galaxy and turn Darth Vader back to the light would blame the teachings of the entire Jedi Order for his moment of human weakness that's maybe the thread that I'm trying to construct in my brain maybe it's there maybe I'm working overtime for it I don't know one of the things I, my wife mentioned, because she's read all of the new canon books now, as, as I have, she said, I wonder if Ben learning that Vader was his grandfather and that being held back from him until it was released to the public had something to do with him turning. But again, that's in a book. 
it's not in the film whatsoever. We have, you know, like, right. Um, and I, I think it would have been interesting specifically too, because Ben has this deal in this, he kills, he's killed two father figures and tried to kill a third in this movie. So there is something seriously wrong with this kid. Like, yeah. And, and, and it, it is, what's interesting is that we, don't really seem to have any idea what that is because we've never seen how he was seduced to the dark side. You know, um, the the question of the original trilogy was interesting in the sense that it did raise the question of once you knew who Vader was, how did he turn? Like, the, the, everybody did want to know that. And then Lucas went back and, and we see the seduction of Anakin Skywalker. Yep. I uh, I'm I'm going to say right here that um, I think there's a, there's an interesting difference here because and maybe it reflects a philosophical difference in generations or something like that I don't know but Lucas went to the effort specifically to say that Vader was not born evil he wasn't a little kid pulling wings off of flies or setting fire to garbage cans or anything. he was a good kid. And nobody's really born that way. They be they can become that because of circumstance. And you can debate the finer points of that philosophy or what have you. Whereas this seems to say Ben Solo was born evil. And Han even says, uh, or Han and Leia when they're discussing in The Force Awakens, I forget which one says the exact line, but somebody says he has too much Vader in him. So they make it a sins of the father sort of thing, like you can inherit evil in some way which seems to go against what the point of the films was up to this point maybe that that reflects the philosophical shift between you know schools of thought that have taken over in terms of director versus director but that to me is odd because it seems to be a point that works against the very point and they address that somewhat in this, where Ray is the one saying anybody can be redeemed. You need Darth Vader. Nobody's beyond redemption. But this movie seems to say, and Matt, you and I even talked about this when we were talking about the Phasma books and stuff like that. This trilogy seems to be saying, nope, there are people beyond redemption. Can't save them. Just not going to be. Whereas the original films were very much all about redemption, that nobody's beyond that point. See, and and Lucas has a quote in this book, uh, George Lucas interviews, um, from his interviews from, you know, the very beginning before THX one one three eight all the way through uh the Phantom Menace. He said, you know, I'm very uh cynical, and he said as a result, I think the defense I have against that is to be optimistic, and think uh that people are basically good, although I know in my heart they're not, and so. I think um, what his goal with Anakin was to show anybody can be turned bad because we all have it in us. We we all have a heart that is not good. We're not basically good. And maybe Kylo is meant to show us that, yeah, we're, some people just choose to be awful. They just choose evil. They choose the dark side. And... and Maybe it's because, you know, and, and this connects somewhat with Ray and a, and a point where, you know, she goes to her uh, 
cave mirror of Erised. Um, and that moment of um, Luke saying, you, it, you went straight to the dark. It offered you something that you wanted, didn't it? And then what is it that the dark side has offered Ben Solo that's been so seductive that he will kill anyone and do anything to be a part of it? And I think that could be a really interesting arc, and I hope that they round that out in episode nine because I'm with you. I find him interesting in the sense that he he's trying to find himself the same way I think Ray is in the sense that he's been defined as I think maybe being a solo or a Skywalker line or any of those things. And, and he's, he's killed one father. He doesn't want to be a solo. He doesn't want to be a Snoke guy. He wants to be his own man. And he's killed yeah. everything that stands in his way of being his own person. And the thing is, structurally speaking, I, think of another thing that would have helped that flashback and something that we we've you know discussed and alluded to is there's that moment where Luke walks in on Ben appearing physically to Ray and why couldn't they have a flashback and again a call out showing Snoke in a similar situation and Luke walking in on it and Ben misinterpreting it as Luke killing wanting to kill both of them and then Ray seeing the same sort of thing happening where it's just Luke freaking out and saying, oh, no, 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 this is terrible. And then even adding more, like we immediately see it explained, oh, okay, well, Ben's just doing what Snoke did to him, which I guess we can make that leap now, but you have to work a little bit to get to that point. I guess we should we should talk about Ray. Um, and I do have to say, you know, my first impression that, was watching the film the first time that things were actually worse for Ray than they were for Ben. Um, I felt like that the old the, this ultimate mystery box was still very much an enigma. I feel like watching it a second time, I really came to find the core thematic element of this film through Ray, at least what I think it is, and I felt like it's really strong. Um, and I actually really love it because of what I think they're trying to say. So for me... Ray continues to be my absolute favorite character in this new trilogy, um, and it's because of what they're doing through her. Oh well, so what is it that you see? Because I so, have a definite yeah. read of what they were trying to say, but yeah, you know, I, I've seen I've seen it all of one time, and my <laughs> read was that you know Ray is showing that uh, even if the dark is calling you, you can still make the choice to be you know to go for the light. That it still is somebody's choice to be what they want to be what theme is it that you're seeing that maybe I don't? Yeah, so for me, um, when she goes to, like I said, uh, I, I like to call her Cave Mirror of Erised, she's looking for what she desires most, right? And what she sees when the mirror kind of illuminates itself and she sees the reflection, it's just her. Um, and in the end, I feel like her cave sequence is is not, quite in the same as like Luke's in the sense of showing what him what he becomes I think it shows her her greatest fear which is that she is just alone um, and the answer about her family I still find vague and unconvincing 
Um, and I, but I think they sidestepped it to make the focus who she chooses to be. That her struggle for identity is so fascinating because the questions in this movie are all about: Are you a product of bloodline? Is it upbringing? It, are you, or are you the sum of your choices and experiences? And I think the movie says that we are responsible for ourselves. We are responsible for how we turn out. We, we, the choices that we make uh, and the experiences we have, that makes us who we are. And not only that, but Ray seems to intuitively understand through the, the legend of Luke Skywalker that we're also responsible to look after those around us, to teach each other, to guide each other, and pass on what we have learned and that hope. Um, and I think that's the reason that, uh, you know, she shows that myths and legends are so important because they're meant to inspire and teach us and show us a better way. The same way that George said from the very beginning, again, quoting from um, the, the, the uh, book that I have here, you know, for him, he, he says, Star Wars always struck a chord with people there are issues of loyalty, friendship, good and evil. And I mean, there's a reason the film's so popular. It's not that I'm giving out propaganda nobody wants to hear. Knowing that the film was made for a younger audience, I was trying to say in a simple way, there is a God and there is both a good and a bad side. And you have a choice between them. The world works much better if you're on the good side. And I think that's what Ray embodies is the idea that it doesn't matter where you're from. Or who you are, it still comes down to the personal responsibility of your choices, regardless of if you're from nowhere, like Ray, whose parents may or may not have left her for drinking money. She still chooses to be good. And that idea of personal responsibility, to me, is one of the most important messages that we could be telling anybody in this world and I, I that's where I was like okay Star Wars here in the the last Jedi is telling myself and the world something that it desperately needs to hear okay with, with Ray's lineage though you know I, I mean you know I obviously yeah we, you know we, we agree it's about you know you can choose no matter what that blah 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 but like with Ray's lineage this is a big thing for people and we, we I think we even said back at the meeting but for me, I'm totally fine if this is the truth about her. If this is just her, she's an orphan that was left by normal people who left her for drinking money. I don't have a problem with her origin story if this is the case that it is. Can either of you give me a lens into why it is a problem if her parents aren't special? If her parents aren't Luke or aren't this or aren't that like if she isn't necessarily descended because before this film my bet was that she was um, you know to tug on the line because Kazan was on the story conferences for Empire and one of the thoughts that Lucas had was that there was another Skywalker somewhere out there in, in the you know reaches of the galaxy who hadn't come into the story yet so I thought she was maybe descended from that line but if she's just the the child of nobodies, does that really matter? Does that bother or destroy the story in any sense? I don't think it destroys the story. It may for some people because they want her to be from the Skywalker lineage or whatever. In my opinion, 
yeah, when I came out of The Force Awakens, you know, I went through all the things like, oh, she's maybe the daughter of Luke or the daughter of Han and Leia or whatever, da, da, da. But I mean, I don't even know what show I was on because there's Star Wars Report or here when we're talking Star Wars. But a few months ago, I predicted that her parents would be nobodies because Disney, I, in my opinion, Disney's looking at what Lucas did and some of the fans complaints were that when the original trilogy came out people felt that they believed that any of us could have the force within us but when the prequel trilogy came out it seemed to imply oh no you have to be the millennia uh the uh, midichlorian count has to be high and you know the chosen one and, and it seemed less attainable for an average person to be able to attain the force and become a jedi and i thought disney's probably going to want to get back on the bandwagon of showing people that you don't have to be a Skywalker to be a powerful Jedi. You could be anybody. And therefore Ray being as powerful as she is, if she comes from quote, nobody and she's not a Skywalker, then it, as the film shows at the very end, as the kid grow, you know, reaches for the broom and brings the force in, we can all have the power of the force in us. Now, is that right for the story? I don't know, but that's right from the marketplace, from Disney's standpoint, in building a franchise. Okay, and, you know, sort of a follow-up question to that then, uh, you know, with, with her parents being nobody and with her being nobody and with her receiving, I would argue, minimal training from Luke uh, going into... That's you know, putting the, it mildly. The, yeah, the latter half of The Last Jedi... She and Yoda even saying, yeah, she already knows what she needs to know. Uh, well, then what? Like, well, there's a certain amount. Like, I, I get that somebody can be ridiculously powerful with the force just from the get go without any training. They could maybe intuit certain things. But Ray really seems to just I mean, you know, like, yeah, I know, but I felt the same way when I saw Empire and Return of the Jedi first time. Luke got trained briefly by Yoda, and then the next movie they said he was a Jedi Knight. And I was like, what? He barely was trained. I, I'll uh, say this, a couple okay. couple of things. One, so on your question of, of does it ruin anything if Rey is just a nobody, um, maybe what it makes her is the next Anakin Skywalker, but the one that does it right. Right. Anakin Skywalker was a nobody, right? Yeah. Like, he came from a nowhere planet. Uh, like, nobody had heard of him until, you know, they crash land on the planet, they need a hyperdrive, and, you know, Qui-Gon runs into what he calls a virgins in the Force. Maybe Rey is just the next virgins in the Force um, that has has been the person that uh, will lead the next Jedi Order. Now, you mentioned Yoda saying she already has all she needs, and the quote is something like, um, don't worry about all these dusty old books. Ray already possesses that which she needs, or already possesses everything they have, which he's referring to the fact that she has the books. Um, he's teasing Luke uh, at that moment. So my thought process is, is that, you know, for Ray going forward... Obviously, she has the original Jedi texts. So, at this point, she is the Jedi Reformation. She's starting with nothing but the scripture. She has no 
um, preconceptions about how anybody's done it. All she has is the myths of Luke Skywalker and the legend of Luke Skywalker, which his legend is all about, you know, um, self-sacrifice and the idea that anybody can be saved um, and they should all be given the choice. Uh, and she has the original Jedi text. And from that, she will build not the old Jedi Order or anything around it because she doesn't know anything about it. She will build something based on the pure, raw Jedi. You know what I'm saying? Like, the the the, the pureness will be there because she doesn't really have a connection with what came before. Well, setting aside any disputes and debates about Martin Luther, um, as, as you allude to, I will... For me what I'm trying to get at is that Ray is already incredibly powerful. Like I, I get what you're saying, Bruce, where, Oh, well, Luke is suddenly a Jedi and everything like that, but he wasn't super Jedi. He wasn't, I didn't think that Luke was at the level where he's going to take on, you know, 15 people and, you know, make it through. It was like yeah, a one-on-one -on -one sort of skills on Jack who, we saw that mm. when they tried to take BB-8 and she was taking down those guys that were trying to steal the, and, and that's when Finn first so saw her. So she, she had staff. natural fight, she had natural yeah, fighting her, skills that yeah, came into it. Yeah, we saw her practicing okay, with sure. the staff and then it was like, okay, you know, let me try it with the lightsaber when she was on, uh, Achu, bless you. <laughs> uh, no, I, although they never said Achu in the movie, did they? Achu, no, I don't think they did. No, <laughs> yeah. no I, I, I think you do have a really good question. Um, and it is something that I wondered about. But what I, I'm coming to see in Ray uh, is that I think one of the, it, it, to me, this would be brilliant. Uh, you can get rid of the question in people's minds about her parentage here. And you can still, if you want, answer the question differently in episode nine and have her be uh, something else, someone else, um, if you want in, in that sense. Or it could be that she is just the nobody from nowhere who the Force has gifted with these powers to... And, and maybe the Force has gifted her with these powers because... Ray is somebody who, despite her, and this is again, Ray connects so much with Harry Potter. She has this awful life, right? Like she's raised in this wicked place where she's basically a slave. She's treated like garbage, and yet she's still turned out good. Like her heart has still yearned for what is good, for what is right, for what is true. And I think that's kind of a beautiful thing that the Force chooses her to in be this powerful. Um, and again, maybe she's just that. For, and, and then to me, it's what makes it exciting to see her journey and, and what makes me love her as a character and my favorite character in this new trilogy because I just I feel like what they're saying through her and what they're doing through her is they're they're truly showing that goodness and kindness and uh, choosing those things above other things when she has a choice, you know, to be the ruler of the galaxy with Kylo, she says, don't go this way. She doesn't even think really about joining the dark side with him. It's like that, she, she is pure light. 
Right. And 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 as, you know, uh Snoke said, you know, uh darkness rises and light to meet it. And and Ray is that vergence and the force of what I think of will be this kind of Jedi reformation that will bring back the spirituality that is missing in this galaxy because you know uh Luke even refers to it as the Jedi religion the same way Tarkin did and that that has been really missing in this galaxy ever since the empire came into power stamped that all out and it's still kind of been missing because Luke hadn't find a, found a way to really bring that back to the rest of the galaxy and now it seems like that's Rey's mission like even think about this the rebels themselves uh, the Rebel Alliance is reborn in a planet of salt. And that in New Testament scripture, it talks about being salty, you know. Uh, and so now the salt of the, the, the good tasting salt that preserves hope, <laughs> they have preserved it and now they will carry that forward to the rest of the galaxy. So I think uh, there's some just really interesting things that are happening specifically with Rey in that that make her fascinating to me. I wouldn't go so far as to call her fascinating. Um, I think that she is her her arc is strong but muddied by the structure of the film, and I think that's a lot of what I get to is like we're we're sitting here and we're we're, we're talking about the the different themes and those sorts of things. And I said this to uh, the neighbor that I went to see. Uh, the last Jedi with uh, on, on the Thursday night that I I'm a longtime fan and I can look for themes and I can find reasons to love this film because I want to. But the flip side of that coin is that I do that with Star Trek five as well. And yeah. I'm a longtime defender of Star <laughs> Trek V because I know what they were trying to say. And I think that some of their themes are very valid. And I think that some of the things that they were trying to say are very good and very applicable even to today's society. I think it's a very enduring theme that they have in Star Trek V. And I think that that is something that is a real risk, not risk, but attribute of these sorts of things is that I knew walking out of the one showing I've seen so far, I knew walking out that even looking at it as a dispassionate film fan in terms of structure, in terms of story arc, in terms of what could have been told leaner, better, fleshed out more, those sorts of things, that in a sense they know it doesn't matter because I will put in the time to figure out why to love this and why to accept it as part of the larger saga. And I will even backfill that to say that that was part of my process of acceptance for The Force Awakens, where I had a lot of issues with that as well coming out of the gate. But I have since come to love and respect it on its own terms because this is a part of the thing that I love and the emotional investment I have in it almost dictates that I have to sit there and say it doesn't matter what the structure of the film is because I can hang on to something that belongs to this larger arc. 
And I, in a very large sense, being aware of that is starting to drive me insane because it's like it's stop. You know, like I just feel like I'm being manipulated at this point. This is weird. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree because here's where I, I let's let's get to Luke because we need to talk about Luke. Uh, and I, I don't know what to make of Luke in this movie. I have the hardest time of anything in this film, as dumb as I think the resistance stuff is with the chase and all that stuff that just drives me crazy because I think it's really bad plotting and really dumb in the end. Like, it's just a dumb storyline. This is the, 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 the place where I cannot rectify the man at the end of Return of the Jedi who saves Space Hitler uh, with a Jedi Master who would sense darkness in his nephew but is so fearful of him that he moment, even momentarily thinks of striking him down with his lightsaber. Like, that, that he makes that choice that Kylo is gone. Like, he... Why... When did Luke turn into Batman from Batman v Superman? Where if there's a 1% chance, we have to take it as an absolute certainty. Like that he he's already made up his mind that there's no hope for... But that's not Luke Skywalker whatsoever. But see, I didn't feel that way. I felt that... And you said it was just... Even if it was just for a moment. And he said it's it was like, you know, just that moment. It was like a passing shadow. And then he realized... It was just that fear that got to him briefly, and it was like, "What should I do about this?" and And there may not be a way to turn it around. It and and the more I try, I have not been successful, and nothing's working. Do I end this now before it goes too far? And he takes that one moment and goes, "No." I mean, there's a split second, yes, and then no, no, I can't do that. But Kylo or Ben actually catches him in that moment. And thinks, you know, that Luke is going to attack him and kill him, possibly. But, so it didn't bother me because I just felt like, you know, Luke is not perfect. And, you know, the weight of the universe is on his shoulders. And because he didn't kill Ben, look what ended up happening everywhere. All his worst fears actually took place. And it wouldn't surprise me if Luke is like, you know what, I probably should have gone ahead and killed him. But he probably still says to himself, but I can't do that. I just can't. Well, I, I definitely think it's an, it, it's an interesting moment. I think it's very thought-provoking. And, Bruce, I agree with you that, you know, I, I mean, obviously Luke says, this is what really happened. I had a moment where I was thinking about it, and he caught me in that moment. I think the general problem with all of these arcs that are good, that I can hold on to, that have strong themes, and that moment, which I don't have a problem with, I think that... Luke having a moment of hesitation or a moment of doubt is fine and I'm okay with it. I think that what happens and this this film is so obsessed with going for the joke in every moment. I think what it is is it doesn't give me any chances to truly soak in those moments and warm up to them and ramp up to them. And so I'm going to blame any any problems with it on the fact that 
it's the nature of the film itself that undercuts this important moment here. And maybe, you know, maybe I shouldn't, maybe that'll ameliorate again with the second viewing or something like that. But I think it's a very good and a very interesting thing because of the theme of there are three sides to every story, yours, mine, and the truth. And the truth is always much more complex than what either side wants to present it as. For Ben, Luke was trying to kill him. For Luke, Ben was, you know, purely evil and he has it has had a hesitation and it's all about uh perception. And I, I just I think that and I, I've said this to to Matt before, there's a there's a supposedly I don't know if it's an assembly cut or not, but supposedly there's a three hour cut of this. And I really think that a lot of these things that we're talking about, given more time, like the three-hour cut of Batman versus Superman, wasn't nuts about the three-hour cut, but I would have reacted to that in the theater a lot better than I did to the two-and-a-half-hour cut because of all of those sudden jumps where I was like, wait, what? Ha- what? okay, I get where you're going here, but when I saw the three-hour cut, I'm like, oh, okay, that... That makes more, that's not as much of a leap now. You're not asking me to jump that far ahead with, with certain reasonings. I don't know. I mean, I, I think. The only problem with a three hour cut is that that chase becomes even longer and that would yeah, kill me. That's that. Yeah. No, you have to think of a whole it new It takes story longer for, for them to run um, out of fuel. Exactly. What I, what, what, what bothers me about it still, though, is like, how in the world can Ben Solo be scarier than Vader and the Emperor together? Like, and 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 this is what I don't get is like, Luke doesn't even do the Obi Wan thing where he allow he he continues to train his apprentice that he continues to put his hope in the fact that he can change him. Like he doesn't do any, like. Obi-Wan doesn't try to murder Anakin in his sleep. Uh, he gives him a chance, even to the very end. He says, don't don't try it. I have the high ground. Don't do it. I, I, I don't want to do this. Right, but look what happened. But, and Luke well, knows no, I underst- I No, I understand. Uh, but my point is, is that Luke makes the decision there that Ben can't be saved. And it, it feels like he has lost the lesson that from Yoda that the... Always in motion is the future, and and I I don't I I yeah. I don't like that I don't like it. Well, well, the thing is, I'll also go to to respond to you, Bruce. Um, you're talking about a person who, you know, however thirty years previous, however many years previous at this moment happens, had made the decision that he would rather die than even kill somebody who was demonstrably one of the most evil people in history. He turned around to the guy who held the number one position and said, no, I'm not even going to kill your henchmen. I would rather die for my principles than kill him and you know save the galaxy suffering or anything like that. He makes the reverse decision that Anakin did and... 
that's what brings Anakin back. And then you have that exact same person having that momentary hesitation. You would think that he would go into every situation saying nothing is hopeless. And yes, Ray talks to him. No, you were wrong. Those sorts of things. And yes, it's an interesting dramatic conflict and I've defended it and now I'm attacking it, that sort of thing. But I understand, I'm just saying this to say I understand what Matt or fans like Matt are saying in that they have taken away the victory that Luke had in Return of the Jedi. And they don't seem to have taken it away for a particularly good reason. Like Ben hadn't done anything yet. Ben hadn't, he had just peered into his future there's not even a history of evil the way that Vader had. And so I can understand somebody coming to it and saying, this really doesn't seem to work with what I saw previously in this exact same series. I can understand and, it. And that's where I think um, what, would, what would make it much more interesting and, and, and much more satisfying to have him have walked in on Snoke and Ben and realize that this has been happening under his nose. And and like you said, then he pulls the lightsaber and Ben thinks that he's going for him. Right. And and what Luke is really doing is he thinks Snoke is there somehow. So right. he's going for Snoke. You know? Um, but there is and that would have been much more compelling because then Luke doesn't come off like uh I a crazy person almost, um, because like you said, he, Ben hasn't done anything yet. But he didn't and, kill and, him. No, he doesn't kill him. But I mean, look, my thought process is this too: like the the moment that that Luke has, it it just seems completely out of character for him to be standing over his nephew while he's sleeping. And doing this, like, do you have to be like that close to your nephew to to go have this moment? Like, you know, can't you? I mean, you're a Jedi Master. Can't you be sitting in your quarters and have this moment where you reach out and feel through the Force your nephew? I mean, you're Luke is for all intents and purposes, he's the only Jedi left. He's the most powerful Jedi in the galaxy at this point. It, it, I. It's it. I I just feel like it's a scene that that hurts the character of Luke Skywalker and to the point where it's like I get him going into exile if if that happens where Ben yes thinks he was going to kill him and then like I I don't know it just I I can't I I personally as for a fan. I cannot rectify this Luke Skywalker with the guy at the end of Return of Jedi, like you I, said, that's willing to to give up everything for the principles that somebody is redeemable. I I don't understand how he he even for a moment thinks there's nothing I can do for Ben. Like that's that's not this that's not Luke. I find myself in this odd gray area between the two of you in that I don't have a problem with the choice. Yet I agree, and I think maybe this gets at what you're alluding to, Matt, is it's the mechanics of the scene. 
that undercut it. And, you know, like, like I was saying earlier, like Luke should walk in and you see he sees Snoke and then Ben thinks that, you know, he's trying to kill them. Or there's some other situation where Lucas had a growing unease about Ben and is unsure what to do about it. And then Snoke, I mean, you want to make Snoke seem awesome. Snoke somehow manipulates it so that Ben can misinterpret something that Luke is doing altruistically. And it breaks Luke because he realizes that no matter what example he sets forth, evil is going to come forth because that's the lesson he teaches Ray that there's always going to be a dark and a light and all of it. And I, I just think that the, I think that the, the general issue is just the mechanics of that scene, which I think speaks to the larger issues yeah. of the mechanics of the film as a whole. Sometimes the film just gets in its own way as to what it's trying to say. Well, the thing I want to address is Luke not going to kill Vader, but he's going to go and kill Ben. Well, I'll say Luke's not going to go try to kill Anakin, but he goes to try maybe try to kill Ben. I think one thing that I question that hasn't come in this conversation is that he thinks Vader can be redeemed because he feels that there's still some good him, good in him. There's still some light, but he doesn't sense that in Ben. But Ray does. And what I question is, why does Luke not sense that Ben still has good in him? Luke even says that he, you know, he was too far. He had all the dark in him. He was too far into the dark. And it's Ray that has to tell Luke, no, there's still good in him. I sensed it. Why didn't Luke sense that? That's my question. And I think because he sensed good invader, he felt like he could be redeemed. And for some reason, he didn't think Ben could. And I wonder why. That's where yeah. I get to. Well, again, bring Snoke into it. Snoke clouded my vision. I he he made it so I couldn't see the light in Ben, or something like that. Like and, and why would Snoke do that with Ray though? To make her not see the light in Ben, she could see the light. Maybe well, because I think that Snoke... scene is because she, he's using those two. They both see something in each other, and they both think they know how it's going to play out. And, and it plays out the way it does, and they actually saw the right thing, but they're seeing it from a different perspective. So it's that perspective thing, like they both think they know what's going to happen, and it happens, and it happens the way that they both said it would, but in a way they weren't expecting whatsoever. Uh, so, And it seemed yeah, like Snook I, was using uh, uh, Kylo as bait to get Ray to come kinda, to him. Yeah, kind of. But right. then why I, couldn't he do that? using Kylo to bring Luke. I would think if, right. if if Snoke could show Luke that there's still some good in Kylo, then Luke would go seek out Kylo, right. which brings him right. to Snoke. Well, and then what about the idea that there is a, um, you know, that there there's almost a counter purpose to everybody's motivations. I mean, I mean, it's just, I, I, while we're sitting here talking about this, I see so many opportunities to have worked Snoke more into the story yep, and give him more weight and yep. more menace and more everything. And it's just, I, I think that's really getting at the core of it for me is right. I needed more on him. And I, I think that, I think that's the tying thread with Ray, with Kylo, yep. with Luke is Snoke is the common thread. Why couldn't you give me more of a sense of how and why of his mechanics? Well, and think about this. If you do that, John, then the story of Ben t 
turning on Snoke and killing him is even more powerful. And it makes Ben even more scary at that moment. Because right now, I don't really think Kylo's that big of a badass. Like, he tricked a dude that doesn't really seem all that scary. Well, here's a question that I have is, have they set up a a scenario where, well, although, of course, I'm working with the, the, I guess, meta knowledge that Carrie Fisher is dead. But the decision to leave Leia alive in this film, as tasteless as some people might think, like I, I would not, let's put it this way, I would not have written it with Leia surviving because if my point is going to be that Ben can't be saved, if my point is going to be that there's no redemption for him, then at the end of this film, I'm leaving nobody left alive who could love him because love is what saves Vader. Celebrate the love, as the original English translation of the the Yub Nub song said at the end. If there's nobody left to love Ben, then maybe that's why he can't be saved. But, uh, you know, Super Leia is still alive. And so there is a mother who still loves him. And so, like, that undercuts. Like, I don't go out of this film with a sense of, like, Wow, I guess they can't save him because there's nobody left to right. give him a chance. Well, and I mean, think about this too. I mean, uh, Ray slams the door of the Falcon on Ben. You know, so you see that she's done with trying to. She gave him his chance, and now she will defend the light with all that she has in her. That is her job now. Like she's taken on the mantle of the Last Jedi. And Ben is is the the one she gave him three or four chances, and he and he turned them down. And and you know, so I yeah, I think um, the the point with Leia is well taken. I think it's a, a big mistake um, to have not to have found a way to allow her to grow out with some amazing grace and dignity. Um, man, put her on the ship instead of Haldo somehow. So that she's the one who saves all of them, yeah. Um, just something like that would have been fantastic. But I, I, I want to talk uh, because we were talking about Luke, and I want to talk about the Yoda scene because it's a huge deal to have Yoda back. Um, and I, I don't like you mentioned earlier, John. I don't understand why Luke is blaming the Jedi and thinks the Jedi need to end because he failed. I mean, if that's not the the highest form of hubris and arrogance I've ever heard in anyone in the Star Wars galaxy, that's it. Nope. This is dumb. Jedi need to end because, well, because they just need to end because I couldn't make it work. So, you know, I lost Ben. Like, Mm-hmm. What I don't understand about why Luke would feel that way is obviously force ghosts are a thing. Yoda shows up. He's got Yoda. He's got Obi-Wan. He's got Qui-Gon. All of them have lost someone to the dark side. Mm-hmm. They all know what this is like. Why aren't they gathering around and having a you know force ghost conference to be like, you know what? It's cool, Luke. We've all had that happen to us, you know. So you just got to shake it off and keep on going. It's like maybe he just needs a Taylor Swift song. The, well, the the very first thing that I said critiquing the Yoda scene was 
it would have worked better with the ghost of Anakin. Because who better yeah. to deliver the message to Luke? You know, you can't be defined by your failures. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Trust me. You know, hey, they want to give him a jokey line. Trust me, Luke. I know. Or have, and this came out of a discussion with a friend of mine. He had a great idea. He said, why not make it like a Council of Erebor scene from one of the Hobbit movies where you see all of these ghosts show up and say, Luke, you know, Yoda, I trained you. Count Dooku came out of me. Obi-Wan, I trained you. And Anakin, hey, you know, look at ha what happened there. And Anakin show up and say, hey, I'm the poster child for bad choices, Luke. You can't really take this one on the chin like this. And it's odd to me because it's very convenient for Yoda to show up at this specific moment of enlightenment, uh, you know, you can you can explain it away any way you want to. Well, Luke was ready, wasn't ready for the enlightenment, but for this point, Yoda wasn't ready to deliver the message. The who knows how the Force works. So take all of that out of consideration. This scene with Yoda and Luke works better with another messenger, in my opinion, but also uh, even Obi Wan. Because right. Obi-Wan is the one who had the greatest, the quote-unquote greatest failure with Anakin Skywalker. I mean, the one that Luke then had to redeem. Like, that seems like so, so much of a stronger point to have it come from him or Anakin himself. Like you said, and hell, you got Hayden Christensen. I'm sure he'd do it. And here's, here's another, pro another of my problems with it, is I could take that scene out of the film, and not only do I not miss it, because the Jedi texts are saved at the end of the film, so they're not actually burning in that scene. So Yoda doesn't really do anything except, you know, have a conversation with Luke. But it also robs Luke of his own enlightenment. It's so much stronger if Luke is affected and deeply thoughtful about what Ray has said and decides to join the battle in his way and throw himself out there through astral projection and all of those sorts of things, if Luke achieves that enlightenment on his own, as I think he should because of the Jedi that I saw him as in Return of the Jedi, the, what I saw him achieve, he can lose that, he can fall, he can fail, but why not have him get back there on his own after he thinks about what mm -hmm. Ray has said and say, oh my gosh, she's going off to do the same thing I did, which is sacrifice herself at all cost to save everyone. Wow, what a you know, what a tool I've been. I well, I and, I need to jump back in this. And that's who Luke was, right? Like he was the guy who jumped in to save people, even at a personal cost to himself, right? Like he was willing to give his life for others. And for his principles, like, and Ray reminds him of who he used to be. I think it's so interesting that Luke of the now doesn't teach Ray anything. It's her understanding of Luke of the past, her understanding of the Luke. legend of Luke Skywalker that Wh teaches her and continues to guide her. It's not Luke of the present. Which is okay because you know that that's sort of a that's sort of a movie trope that the old master has gone crazy and he doesn't you know he's retired from the world and you go and you get him and you give him a reason to come back to fight. Apparently and so he turned I, into Joris Sabioth. 
Right. But, but you know, I, I'm actually okay with that. Like, I'm okay with Ray being the one to come back and deliver him the lesson. But again, you take Yoda out of that and you instantly magnify mm-hmm. Ray's presence and importance yeah, because absolutely. she's the one that delivers the message to Luke. Not, not ghost Yoda. Not, not quite right looking ghost Yoda. A really bad puppet Yoda? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. 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 That bothered me too. Um, and I agree with you 100%, John. Um, you know, it's just as you're talking, the more I start to just realize how when I go into movies like this and, and franchise that I really love, I know I'm going in and seeing a movie that is not made for me or made for us. It's made for everyone. And every, you know, they sit there and they know people want to see Yoda. And I just accept the fact, you know, that scene probably isn't necessary to the story. And I think it would be more powerful exactly how you said it would be if Ray was the one that convinced Luke to do the actions he did later but you know that's what comes with these movies people want to see yoda let's put yoda in there what i think at least put funny. the right yoda use use blu-ray yeah. yoda from uh, or, Madness, yeah man. seriously um so I, I think it's just funny though the jedi must end seriously a thousand generations of peace not a bad run yeah they they probably don't need to come back we don't need those guys so well um, uh, no, maybe you're no hold problem. on Challenge flag because all three of us have had conversations about how the Jedi went wrong by the time of the prequels. No, so, no, I'm just saying. You know. I'm just saying. For uh, uh, we know that uh, at least you know. Okay, let's say 800 generations. The Jedi seem to have kept peace and prosperity and and justice throughout the galaxy. Still, a really long, good run, right? Yeah, yes, maybe they, the they last hundred years job. not so great. Yeah. The last 200 years not so great, but <laughs> yeah. still. I mean, it's it's a good run, right? Um, you know what I think is really interesting, though, is the idea that both Kylo and Luke they want the same thing. Like Kylo wants to burn it all down, and so does Luke, and and they just want to do it for different reasons. You know, uh, Kylo because he's angry at everything and everyone, and he's just like. No, I'm going to be my own man, and I'm going to I'm going to burn this mother down, you know. And, and Luke's kind of the same way. Um, it's because of his hubris, and he's blaming all the wrong things in the end, uh, instead of, you know, that there are choices that led people dark or light, and it's not the teachings of the Jedi. And I thought it was really interesting because, in the end, it, it created a question for me: like, what do you pass on, right? Because there are, like, how and how we pass things on is so important. And, you know, if we don't train our kids, if we don't train the next generation, somebody's going to, right? Like, and what was so frustrating to me is, like, Luke, somebody's going to train Ray. Do you really want it to be somebody like Snoke? Like, somebody's going to teach her. Like, what is it that you want to teach her? And so it really became the importance then of history and context and, and somebody understanding it and passing it on, like, and how important it is to pass things on. And I just, I really thought that that was interesting, that they both kind of want the same thing in the end. And it almost seems like Luke realizes at the, in, at the last moment, oh, no, I I. I do need to be involved. Like, I I do, like, this does need to be passed on. And I can help save the person who will then 
continue to pass it on with Ray. I just I thought that was really interesting that in the end they both kind of wanted the same thing for the most part, just for different reasons. Yeah, I they did. Um, and I think that maybe speaks to one of those themes that's going to allow me to dig back in and look past any of the, you know, the film fan issues that I have with this film and its structure is the idea, again, that you can have a an objective thing. I mean, you know, Luke talks about the force. There's an objective thing. And it's our arrogance that assigns the idea. I actually found that to be a very Lucas type of thought, you know, that there's the dark and the light exist without us and it's us trying to manipulate it that you know and our arrogance that affects things but i think that luke and kylo going for the same thing quote unquote really talks about the idea that you you can have a concept let let's take the word progress or change you know what everybody loves to say change change is good well no change is a thing whether the change is a good thing or a bad thing depends on your point of view, depends on how you apply it, depends on what you're trying to change and trying to accomplish. And so I actually kind of like that, that it does speak to the larger theme that you can have this objective thing that is neither good nor bad. And then you have two different people that are trying to maneuver it to their own ends. So it works for me in that, in that context. I wanted to ask you guys, uh, <laughs> The one moment I just wanted to to talk about really briefly is I gotta say uh, R two didn't get a lot to do in this movie, but I love what he did get to do, uh, and I kind of loved Luke's reaction, which was basically "Dick move, bro, Dick move," which was awesome. Like it was just like yeah. when he's going on about how there's nothing that's gonna bring me back, and he pulls out that recording and he's like, "Damn it!" Yeah. Yeah, well, at least they gave R2 something to do. Yeah, I was a little disappointed we didn't have more R2. I mean, it really feels like a Star Wars movie when you get C-3PO and R2. And there's so many opportunities because they're ageless. We could go all these movies with that duo, and we were getting just little tiny bits of them. And it's in some ways, it's disappointing. But, I mean, they don't need to structure the story around the, the droids. So, you know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Well, I, I think I think that actually, Bruce, you hit on a, a very big thing that contributes to uh, some of the issues that I have with this overall is the fact that this feels, in some senses, like one of the Star Trek The Next Generation movies. They feel an obligation to give every character a moment. And the... If you're going to compare, you know, if I'm going to go down the Star Trek road, the original series films work because they have the triumvirate and then everybody supporting them. And then the next generation films I never really plugged into because it was, let's take generations, for instance. We got to give Kirk plenty to do. We got to give Scotty and Chekhov a moment. We got to give Picard his moment. Well, we got to make sure we treat Riker well. We got to make sure we treat this person. We got to make sure everybody, every fan gets something that they want. And as a result, and you make me question why the hell Phasma was even in this freaking movie. Um, because there's, why did you build, like, and, and as somebody who read the ancillary materials with Phasma, why, why did I spend my time doing that? Like, I like the materials and everything, but so the payoff is that just that they focus grouped that everybody said that it should have been Phasma facing Finn on Takodana back in The Force Awakens. And they said, fine, we'll give you that pole fight in this one instead. But 
And, and now I'm rambling. But like, you know, I, no, I think. No, you're you know. absolutely right. Because I'm so glad you brought that up to talk quickly about Phasma. Like, I, I don't get it. Like, oh, remember Phasma? Well, don't worry. You don't really need to because she's not important. Like if they she, bring if they bring her back after she falls into a flaming yeah. abyss of a ship that's been split in half, yes, I'm, no, I'm out. No, I'm because, done. I I'm not. Well, I am not down with that unless I find out that she's the actual like reincarnation of Palpatine. My my wife said this. She said, "I feel so bad for Delilah Dawson right now." She's like, "I love the Phasma book. We both liked the Phasma. John, you and I talked about it here on the show. We we talked about. It. We really enjoyed that book I read and the it way and they brought that." Yeah, we brought that book. I mean, she brought that character to life. And and then you just do this like you don't have to kill her in that moment. You can do the kind of reveal mm-hmm. and she could fall and it just gives time Finn and and Rose time to get away, right? But she doesn't have to be dead. But mm-hmm. you left it us feeling like she's dead. And 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 those materials, like this, is the ultimate survivor who will do anything to survive, right? Mm-hmm. And this is how. And this is, I mean, she's going to go out like a punk. How are you going to react when they bring her back for episode nine? Because I'm, just, I'm, 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 I'm just, putting my I'm money just down be right shaking now. Shaking my head. I, I'm, I'm slapping my credits down on the table on Canto Bite right now, next to Justin Thoreau as Master Codebreaker. She's coming back in episode nine. I'll bet you dollars to donuts. One of my yeah. daughters agrees with you, and she thinks that maybe you know her armor protects her from the fire that she fell into. Yes, I mean and she, she is she wearing falls uh, onto a deck that hasn't split off from the rest of the ship, and yeah. is you know right. sure okay. Yeah. She is wearing uh, chromium armor from a Naboo starfighter, which is why lasers bounce off of it. You know, blaster fire. So yeah, maybe I don't know. It just <laughs> seems like she fell through fire. Come on. Guys, it, uh, anyway. Okay. She's let's like Kenny to... from uh, South Park. Actually, <laughs> you say that. She's going to die in every you single say that. one. Ryan I love Johnson it. said yes. that in her interview on EW. Who on said that? Entertainment Weekly. Ryan Johnson himself said that she's the Kenny of Star Wars. Oh, really? There you go. <laughs> yes. Okay. He even says it. So, uh, I mean, there you go. Apparently, you guys are thinking right alike. Okay. Let's get to the chase, the resistance story, uh, because this is where. All of my issues really come out. Like the rest of the movie, I feel like we can talk through all those issues and it we've got all these themes to work through and we can kind of start to rationalize and we really this story makes no sense. It it is legitimately makes no sense. I mean cruisers are light or lighter than the Star Destroyer, so they can move a little faster, and the Star Destroyer. Yes, can't in space, catch up. weight matters. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you it know, can push itself. I will say that Hux is apparently related to um, to Khan because he only thinks two dimensionally. Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> don't encircle or englobin, I guess, in space your enemy and make it impossible for them to. I mean, that would even be a more interesting sort of thing. If they said, okay, fine, deploy the fleet in a globe around them and let them just run in a circle and just chase them from ship to... Like, that's kind of cool and nobody can escape. But I think that the entire... I have less of a problem with it if you do two things. And if I were the proofreader on Ryan Johnson's script, and I wasn't, obviously, but if I were, I would say, hey, Mr. Johnson, 
let me make some suggestions to you here. Just two minimal suggestions. Get rid of Haldo and have Leia present through the whole film and have her make her big sacrifice at the end because Star Wars is all about personal sacrifice and, you know, nobility. And don't have them go to Canto Bight. Have them find a way to get onto a ship or the ship that's tracking them or, or what ha- whatever you want to make, make it at that point and have them have the escape of the other ships dependent on them being successful in their mission so that even when they do fail, it's just that you've raised the stakes instead of filling it with a sense of inevitability that, uh, you know, well, I know they're not going to wipe out all of the ships, you know, it, it, that sort of thing. Like, I, uh, I just didn't see why not to have things tie together better from a very fundamental structural standpoint. There was no reason, even if you want to keep the chase, there was no reason to send people away from it or to have Haldo not tell what would it have cost her to say, instead of saying, just listen to me, you need to learn a lesson, okay? You need to trust people. Uh, we got cloaking devices, we're cool. Oh, oh, I better call Finn and Rose because... um kind of pointless because the person they're going to find is going to be the only reason that the first order can find where our ships went. Right. Yeah, and then, yeah, and and she doesn't tell Poe, but then when he's finally on that transport ship with Leia, Leia's like, "Poe, yeah. come over here. I'll now tell you what's going on." Right. <laughs> and the other thing that drove me crazy is Finn comes up with this great idea. If we can just get onto the star destroyer and take out the tracker, and, and Rose is like, yeah, but how would we ever find it? Because, you know, the guy who mopped the floors, he knows where, like, he's saying, like, I got this great idea. And then they take it to Poe, and Poe's like, okay, great, let's do it. And Finn's like, yeah, but you can't get through the shields. Right, like, yeah. Well, yeah. Finn, why did you come with this great idea? Just to go, yeah, well, you can't do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Haldo. Okay, look, I, I mm. love the idea, uh, and I like the arc for Poe that we're going to try and teach this guy this lesson that Leia is passing on what she's learned and she but, but Leia does it right right so they're in the middle of the bomber attack it's not going well right she waits till they've escaped and everything's okay to then slap Poe demote him and tell him to get his head out of his cockpit she teaches them a lesson when it's the right time to teach somebody a lesson, correct? Why is Haldo putting the entire, like, like, I don't understand why she's not telling them what the plan is so that they understand it, so that they could all work together to make this plan come together. Um, did, I mean, you could even ameliorate it with for me by just having Haldo mention to um, that other female officer that she thinks that there's a spy on board, so don't tell anybody else, but yes, this is what we're doing. Exactly. It makes it so much better. Like, But no, she's, for no reason whatsoever than, other than she's trying to teach Poe a lesson at the expense of telling everybody the plan to making sure that it goes through swimmingly, like it makes no sense because that's the only reason then that Finn and Rose leave and it gives them something to do. And it's just like every part of this is so 
badly logically written, I don't understand how this passed muster as the story for half of the movie. And th- and I just want to say two things. One, it, it, we all keep saying for no reason, and it, it reminds me of a Futurama where Fry writes a story that fools the the brain creatures, and you know, and here I go for no reason. And number two is just this. This is a problem I would have with any film. This is not a long-term Star Wars fan talking about this. This is not a Lucas devotee. This is not anybody who has any sort of grudge against Disney owning the movies. I don't. This is the same problem I would have with any movie where I watch this. I would say, this doesn't make any sense the way you've constructed this. And that's why I say I'm so curious about that supposed three-hour cut is there something that explains it better? Is there something that happens on Canto Bite? Is there something that happens on the ships? I know that they reshot some things. I'm so just insanely curious about how they got to this point and thinking that this worked as the best solution for everything. What I don't get is why instead of this chase sequence, like, look, you could totally have the uh the escape right and that they get away but obviously the resistance has nothing right they they, they're they're s out of luck they've got barely any ships left they have no backers so what if this story for them was about some of these characters going to canto bite to secure backers for the resistance and this is a planet that's kind of a safe zone. Like, they're force order, resistance, you're not allowed to, you know, like, this is home base. You you, you can't do any warring here. So it create create this whole intrigue, spy, James Bondy-type plot for Poe and Finn and Rose and maybe Haldo to be a part of there. And then they get found out, or their ship has a tracker that leads you back to... to um, crate and then you have your battle right but this chase sequence and the arriving on canto bite only narratively narratively connects us with this kind of nebulous idea that they're trying to get across like that not people aren't necessarily bad or good and they're trying to do this whole thing with dj don't join and like they're trying to add all these plots and themes and everything like there and it, but it's all so muddied and it's all covered up with the fact that you don't need to really be here if Haldo just tells everybody what the plan is like there's absolutely no reason for that so if you're writing this script you have to figure out a reason why they legitimately need to be at Canto Bite because it's actually going to mean something for the rest of the story other than just being mm-hmm. a massive mistake. Right, and every Star Wars I made movie, a huge mistake, Michael. Every Star Wars movie has to have the Cantina, the Jabba Palace, the Maz Kanata's Castle. Now we have Canto Bite. It's like, to me, it's it was forced in just to have it. Yeah. Well, and I love the yes. idea of this place. Like, I think the execution of it is 
cool in the sense of like the way it looks, the idea yeah. that there is this type of place in Star Wars that makes total sense. Um, I don't understand what it takes to get a freaking like Twi'lek or Rodian in this this galaxy anymore. Um, <laughs> well, I don't understand why we have to keep creating like whole cloth new aliens every single movie for no good reason when you can just you know just throw well, a Twi'lek in there. Is all I'm saying. But like, there's there's no app. There's no real good reason through the plot structure here to go to Canto Bite because it's predicated on one of the dumbest things, which is Haldo being, I don't know, a, yeah. a, 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 a teacher? Let's, let, let, let's say, okay, let's just say that the, the Haldo thing is the one, well, the one flaw here. The whole diversion and being arrested and then ending up in the cell with Benicio Del Toro is just this long diversionary way why not wind up with the master code breaker, have him betray you, and then say, but Maz said you were, and he can say, yeah, Maz is, you know, Maz's heart lies to her, or so, you know, or something like that. And it's like, ha, ah, you know, I play no side, and I'm, how do you think I can afford to play at these tables and everything like that? I thought Benicio de Toro's character was interesting, but it was just this m tortured way to get to him, and it just didn't. And I will say, like uh, you know, over on Great Shot Kid with with Mike Schindler over on the Nerd Party, we looked at Looper, uh, which was Ryan Johnson's sci-fi time travel movie. And what's very fascinating to me is if you look at Looper and then you look at the Last Jedi, there's the same problem where the main plot line and themes that he goes after are interesting and intriguing and keep me watching. But then there's this weird side plot thing going on where you just sit there and say, you really didn't need this. This didn't need to be in the movie. And if anything, it just keeps me away from the thing that I'm interested in. So why is it here? And I just, you know, I, again, it's not even speaking as a Star Wars fan. It's just speaking strictly as a film fan, looking at the structure of this film. I struggle with how this got out of draft stage with this clunkiness in place. And the problem is, is that it hurts your new characters that you're trying to introduce to this this world, right? You you introduce Rose, who could have been, I think, a fabulous character, but you stick her in a plot line that makes her redundant. And, and not really important. Um, and so you undercut anything you're trying to really do with her because if you start to think about her plot line, you're like, what? Just, what? And then what I don't understand too is I feel like you misuse the character of Haldo who should be the one to like, look, you need to have fixed this in post so that it's Leia on the ship and it's Haldo left because she's going to be the one to help run the resistance or the rebellion with Poe then. And then you have that great dynamic going into episode nine with Haldo and Poe where they're kind of antagonistic toward each other, but they actually begin to respect each other, right? Like you have this whole thing that you could really do and have Leia be the one to do that self-sacrificial act and destroy what looks like 30 different ships for the first order like really have her go out in a literal blaze of glory so that you're you're sad and emotional but cheering at the same time because 
like you introduced Haldo and she just became a nothing character. Like you introduce her and she's gone. Like, and I just kind of wasted time with her instead of getting to spend more time with Carrie. You know, and in 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 retrospect, obviously they they did not know she was going to die. But in retrospect, it's it's sad that we lose time because I have to say, I want to call out Carrie Fisher was magnificent in this movie. I think I think she was really really good. I felt like the moment when she you know when she slaps Poe and gets in his face and everything and the relationship that they have together, I thought was really good and wonderful to watch. Um, her, you know, I guess um, almost death sequence is really strange, but okay, I'll go with it. You know, I guess. Uh, you know, <laughs> look, look, full full stop. Super Leia is another scene, just like the Yoda scene at the tree, where the bridge gets hit, and I don't see Super Leia, but I just see that she survives. Oh my gosh, how did she survive? I don't know. The Force. Okay, cool. Having her floating out in space. I originally took it, especially when the music cue started up and she was floating out there. I was like, wow, this is the farewell. Wow. I started to feel really emotional. I was like, yeah, this is too. my goodbye to Carrie Fisher. This is, wow, I can't believe. And then her hand moved. And, and that went, was bold oh, and unexpected really? if you do that. And I do have to say also that I was, with this effect and some of the other effects in the film, surprisingly disappointed with how some of them played, considering this is Star Wars and ILM, this was one of those effects when when she was Super Leia, you know, drawing herself back to the ship. I was I was kind of surprised that that it didn't play as well on screen as I would have liked it to. It seemed it seemed odd. It didn't. I like the Mary Parkins Leia. That was. <laughs> I actually liked it because you know just seeing her having force powers and using them. But I, and your disappointment of you know it would have been bold to go ahead and this would have been the death of Princess Leia. That's also how I felt with Finn on Crate when he was going yes. with the gun. I was like, oh my gosh, they're actually going there. This is so great. Yes. And then of course Rose comes, and I'm like, screw you, Rose. <laughs> with, with, and and with the moral of it's okay if we all die as so long as we love each other. Right. Whoa, whoa, full stop. Oh no, I'm not cool with that. That's not good. Well, I wanna I want to touch that theme in just a minute, but um, I actually wanted to touch on crate with you guys because I think that the scene, uh, the the planet idea is is kind of magnificent. There, I think it's pretty beautiful. Um, the, the, the visual element of it felt like George Lucas, the creation, the, the juxtaposition of white and, and basically blood, uh, you know, and this whole idea. And then, uh, I love the tie in with rebels, with the loath wolves and now these foxes, you know, and that there's this connection there I thought was beautiful. Like I thought all that worked really well. Um, Gareth Edwards shows up, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, like Good all cameo. of that stuff. And and then, of course, uh, the Luke scene there where he finally comes and faces off against Kylo. And I think, like, yeah. all of that stuff works so well. Um, and so I just wanted to ask you guys about Crate because I felt like this... Um, John, I know for you, like, the last hour of Rogue One is phenomenal for you. You love it. 
you know, that's the part of the movie that really clicks for you. I felt like once we got to Crate, things started to really click for this movie finally because everything was finally coming together and feeling connected. And this is where I really enjoyed the movie because then, you know, like you have the scene with Luke and Kylo and it's just like, oh, this is the the scene that I have kind of been waiting for with Luke Skywalker um, and him saving the, you know, the rebellion once again, like all of that stuff, I felt like... We it finally worked. It finally clicked. It finally worked, except for Rose. Yes, I I agree. The crate thing, except for Rose, just taking that anyway. Not dwelling on that. And the only other thing on crate that I would ping is um, the Falcon chase with the dogfight music from A New Hope, um, and wacky Porg falling on the window. Yeah. Like it was. It was, I mean, seriously, I was like, this doesn't really help anything with the story. And well, I no, understand I mean, I, I that there are the fun action because, sequences, but. Yeah, but they but, they bring off all of the ships and they, I mean, they're literally no, I, giving I understand, them time. But they, did, they didn't need to have the chase through the yet another tunnel with music from yes, a previous yeah. film. Yeah. No, I get like, it. Like, just ch- have them chase off and, and, and go off because they're going to, once again, just like when they dropped off Ray, just magically disappear and then reappear when they need to. So uh, the, the Falcon is a magic trick in this movie. And fine, I don't need that 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 chase part. But yeah, I mean, overall, Crate was, I was like, wow, this is what I paid my money for, to, to see something like really intense and interesting like this. And then Luke... The Luke reversal and, you know, speaking to the Buddhist philosophy that all all the material world is illusory and and, you know, that seems to tie into like Lucas's thinking right off the bat and and those sorts of things. Although. Still don't know why Luke didn't have the green saber when he was even the illusion, because, um, you know. That Kylo would have known him with the green saber, so why not? And I would have liked to see the green saber once again. But it, and, well, and yes, I know I saw it in the flashback. Tip off but, that know. Luke's not really there. Like I that's know the that thing I... for me that really bothers me is that like that even for a general audience, I feel like that's too much of a tip off because we just saw that yes. lightsaber get destroyed. Yeah, yeah. He's he's wearing a different outfit, has darker hair, neater neater haircut. And uh, isn't leaving footprints. You didn't need the blue lightsaber to completely sell that he's an illusion. Like with the green lightsaber, the next time I see it, I would have been able to go along with it and be like, "Oh, right, 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 he's an illusion." Whereas I'm going to sit down and be like, "And it was dry." Like even before I was convinced it was an illusion, he struck up the blue lightsaber, and I was like, "That that lightsaber's been destroyed." That's it. Oh, right. Okay, right. Yes. Okay. It's definitely an illusion. I even questioned if it was that same blue lightsaber i was like oh wait is this a different blue lightsaber because like you said the mm. one's been destroyed i'm like but it looks a lot like it and yeah that confused yeah the hilt the was the same time. yeah yeah um but yeah i like crate the only thing uh <laughs> i love how we just go right to the negative first the only thing i didn't like about crate was by the time we were getting to the point of arriving to crate i thought this you know the movie was about to end and knowing that Crate was in this movie, I was like, oh, wait a second. We haven't even got to Crate yet. And that's when I started to feel like the movie was taking a little too long. But yeah, once we got to Crate and the action happened, I mean, I, I was loving every minute of it and Luke fighting Kylo. And then, you know, Luke's not really there. And I thought, has he been dead this whole time? Is he a force ghost? And I mean, it was and, and then everybody, you know, trying to get out and 
and Ray coming. It's Star Wars: The Sixth Sense. He's been dead the whole time. Yes, he sees dead. People. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I um, the one question I wanted to ask you is, how do you feel about Luke's last line? See you around, kid. I did not feel like that felt like Luke. I felt like that felt like a a character from a Dirty Harry movie or like it, 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 I to me it didn't ring true. I, I, it feels more to mm. me like Mark Hamill than Luke Skywalker. Like I can see Mark Hamill like maybe mm. even ad libbing that. I'm I'm okay with the line. I'm perfectly okay with the line because I think that its purpose is that Luke could show up as a Force ghost right. in the next one yeah, because he true. says no one's ever really gone, and he also says see you around, kid. That's maybe a nod to the audience of, you know, you never know. Luke might be back anyway. And oh, he's so back. I'm okay with it. He's coming back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What did you think about, uh, as we're talking about Luke then and his noble end, uh, how did you feel about him dying in this movie and not making it to the next movie? Adds to the impression that their episode nine's superfluous. There's nothing. I, I like. At the end of Attack of the Clones, I said, wow, what are they going to do? Because, wow, look at all they set up. How are they possibly going to resolve everything? And with this one, I look at Episode Nine as, what are they going to do? There's nothing left to explore. Like, this is, like, Episode Nine has to be the coda. Like, I look at the ending of Episode Eight, and I say, Episode Nine, if I'm coming in, and they say, you know, Chris Terrio needs some help. John Mills, you come on over and you help him out. You're Castle Junkie after all. And I sit down. First thing I say to Terrio is, I, I think we should start 10 to 20 years after episode eight. That That's the impression I'm left with. And Luke being dead just adds to that. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I, I was left with the same impression. I was like, no, this has to be at least five to 10 to some odd years later because... I, I feel like it has to be this battle then between the Knights of Ren and Rey's new Jedi. And you're going to have to have a lot of time between to have that happen, which is fine because, you know, we had 10 years between episode one and episode two. So I'm totally cool with that. Right. Um, And so, heck, that gives them a lot of book time to fill in things too, right? Yeah. So uh, I want to see, uh, see time between episode eight and nine, just like you're saying. I don't want it to be where we're going to pick up right where we left off with episode eight and everybody is coming off of the Falcon. And of course, Carrie Fisher's not there. So they're just yelling up the ramp. Leia, you, well, yeah, okay, we'll see you in a moment. You, you just, you know, gather your stuff. We'll see you later. <laughs> Well, and that I mean, episode nine's crawl. Yeah. Then I mean, said it's. I mean, that this is my picture. It's opening. You know, uh, General Solo, our General Organa, has been dead for ten years. You know, uh, and and you could, or you could even have it be less time because, again, as you're filling in that gap uh, with books and stuff, you could still have her be alive, right? And and you could put her death in in one I, of those ancillary materials. Yeah. Um, so uh, you can do that, but the crawl to me says somewhere in there, the death of Lair Organa has hit the resistance hard or the rebellion, whatever they're going to call them now, rebels, Godspeed, whatever. I would, uh, I, I mean, not only would I start a number of years later, but I'd start with Leia's funeral. Oh yeah, that's a great as, idea. As a closure moment and just, yep. just get it out of the way and don't yep. try to explain it away as, oh, well, she's over in another part of the galaxy. Just have it be... Mm-hmm. You know, she gave her life at, you know, this or Absolutely. she the being exposed to space. 
you well, know, had its effect anyway. Or, or have like the that. crawl start off. Leia Solo or Leia Organa has vanished. Just like Luke Skywalker. <laughs> yes, and Ray has to go find her now. And Ray's like, here we go again. Son uh, of a Yeah, um, I um I'll be interested. I like one of my one of my reactions to episode eight is that when Trevoro was fired or left episode nine, we all took it as him being fired. Whereas I, when I came out of episode eight and I had this, wow, this is a duology, this is done. I then made the next step. I said, I think Trevorrow probably saw the way this ended and said, I, I can't do this. I, I don't know what to do from here. And just well, bailed. Yeah, yeah. And just, and, well, and I don't think it was a bad we, decision on his part. We know that for him, Leia was going to be a huge part. And so without... Right having his main care oh like what i think is he knew exactly what he wanted to do the story he wanted to tell she dies he was the key and he couldn't think after this where this movie ends what to do um right and and i get that i i mean i i you have a story in your mind and you're like eh, i i don't know what to i i'm sorry guys i can't think of any good way to continue this so let's give it to somebody else so yeah um one of the things that I was really, this is something I've been thinking about um, uh, for a little bit now, thinking through the movie, this kind of idea of lost hope. You know, uh, no one comes to help the resistance at the end. Like they even say, you know, people have heard our message, but nobody's coming. And I wanted to ask you guys, do you think it's just because nobody believes in the Republic? I mean, when I look at the Republic... It doesn't seem like it would be something to believe in. What we got in the ancillary materials is a government that left places like Kashyyyk and stuff under imperial control and seemed to be totally cool with it. I thought uh, that I, I don't think people believe in the resistance because that's the impression I got from The Force Awakens, that the New Republic didn't support the resistance. So I would assume that that the general public doesn't trust them either or it believes in them. Yeah, it makes sense. I, you know, what are they going to do? The the only option is people show up and they suddenly have a big space battle, and the movie was already two and a half hours by that point. So nobody answered. Yeah. Okay, done. Yeah, I don't know. I was just something that it. it I don't know. It it seemed like maybe it was one of those things like people haven't learned from the past, and now the Republic is gone, and the Jedi and Sith are gone as we knew them. So maybe it's time to really put all the lessons that we should have been learning into play. Um, and this is where the message I wanted to ask you guys about with, uh, I don't like what where it happens, what Rose says. This idea of like, well, we got to fight for what we love, you know, save what we love and not what we, you know, fight what we hate. Like, and I felt like that's a great statement for this movie. I don't like it where it comes in, but I, I like the idea we need to go back to the lessons of, of of the legends, the myths, the wisdom from these dusty old books, the virtue and truth that they illuminate, the 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 what we got uh, from the example of Luke Skywalker in Return of the Jedi of redeeming Vader, self-sacrificial love. We need to go back to this, and I'm hoping that's kind of going to be what Episode Nine is about like this idea of 
returning hope. Um, I, I will just say that what, what they've done with this, and uh, again, I will, I will always find a way back to find a way to love uh, a franchise film, any franchise that I'm a fan of. I'd love for that to come into play, and I think that they're, they've, they've punted on their promise from The Force Awakens, and Episode Nine now has even higher pressure to bring those sorts of lessons into play and those sorts of themes so that we all feel like it's paid off. And I think that this is a really interesting test for J.J. Abrams. I understand that Terrio's involved, and I'm glad that he is, but I really think that this is a this is going to be a challenge for the master of the mystery box to come into this and try to make the previous two a cohesive whole. You know, as we've been talking through this, I was thinking how, you know, having a vision for this whole trilogy, uh, Lawrence Kasdan, it would have been great that if he was just like working with each of the directors, helping to, uh, to write the whole trilogy or some common denominator. But I, I have a hard time believing that Lucasfilm, having seen all these people come up with theories of who's Snoke, who's Snoke, who's Snoke, can just go, eh, we don't need to do anything with that. We don't have to address it. I, I just want to believe in my heart that Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy are like, you know what? We were expecting this reaction because eventually this is playing out in episode nine. And we know that's eventually going to satisfy the wants and the questions of all these people are having. I just can't believe that they would just think, oh, you know, we can just take Snoke out and, and no one cares. Because even if Ryan Johnson's like, I don't really care about Snoke, I would think that Luke, uh, like Kathleen Kennedy would say, you know, we, we've got to answer something. We've got to show something. We get, you got to give them some backstory or, or the first order of the Wren and all this stuff. So I'm hoping, again, I think Star Wars is still under construction, this trilogy, and I'm hoping J.J. does something with it in this next movie. And if not, I'm going to probably start having to struggle unless they say they're going to do a 10, 11, and 12. <laughs> well, Bruce, um, we really want to thank you for joining us. Uh, I know you have a very early morning, and so I want to let you run. Um, so I'm going to ask you, uh, do you have a rating for The Last Jedi? Well, there's so much that we focused on here, which I would say is like the nitpicker's guide to The Last Jedi for me. Um, because for the most part, I love a lot of this movie. The What I like about this movie outweighs what I don't like. There's things that maybe don't set well or there's questions that aren't answered that bother me a little. But all in all, I enjoyed the movie tremendously. I had a great time watching it all three times. I get more interested in it each time I see it. So I would say that I give this movie about a maybe three quarters tank of fuel for my cruiser. Awesome, man. Okay. Well, hey, thanks okay. for joining us tonight and uh, good luck with your flight tomorrow. Yeah, so. fun, fun. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> and may the force be with you. May the force be with you. <laughs> Well, John, uh, something that I wanted to ask you um, was this idea about the humor, because we talked a little bit about that, and we've we just personally, we've talked about it together as well, and I wanted to ask you how you felt like the humor worked in this movie. I didn't. 
I uh, I think I said this to you elsewhere. I I'm fine with humor, and I know that it's a different landscape, and I know that you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the humor in this made me feel like I was watching Marvel's Star Wars, and I thought that they couldn't let a scene go without a joke. And as much as I was strangely, I was kind of okay with it with The Force Awakens. because, And I think that's probably because of the fact that it was Harrison Ford. And the guy is a really deft actor with terrific comic timing. A lot of the humor here felt forced, especially, and we've made reference to it earlier in the show, to Poe. You know, oh, it's a message about your mom. I immediately, like the crowd laughed, and I immediately kind of groaned internally where I said, oh, uh, your mom joke is new, and I I don't like those in any context. And some of the humor I initially reacted poorly to, but then I came to be okay with, like Luke tossing the saber over his shoulder. I, and my initial reaction is, you took the most powerful, emotionally resonant moment from The Force Awakens and you reduced it to a joke. And I can never watch that moment from The Force Awakens without the joke again in my head. But Luke is crazy old master and I don't see him doing it as a joke line. I think he could have dropped it and walked off instead of tossing it over his shoulder. But it is a... Like that immediately I knew I was going to have to set an expectation for what the humor was going to be like. Because again, I get what you're trying to do, but to take a moment that moved me, even though, even despite all of the problems I had with The Force Awakens, that scene where Ray walks up and hands the saber to Luke, I was virtually on the edge of tears because it's so gorgeous and beautiful and perfect and oh my gosh it's Luke and I haven't seen him in so long and now I can't watch that scene without knowing what he's going to do next you know like it just seemed so extraneous and a lot of the humor here seems extraneous with my wife and I watching Empire and then uh, going into Return of the Jedi one of the things that we were noticing back and forth was that the humor in Star Wars, especially in the original trilogy, which this trilogy is trying to mimic in a lot of ways, you know, to, to feel like that, right? It's it's very dry humor, and it's for sarcastic humor. And it's, and it's situational to kind of the, the black humor of where they are in the situations, you know? Um, like Han saying... Uh, how are we? Same as always. You know, like, that good, huh? You know, like, that is very funny, but it's very dry, and it's very sarcastic. And that seems to be the humor that most of Star Wars kind of tends to go along. And if you think I'm just picking out the, the original trilogy, it, it reminds me of the same uh, the line from The Phantom Menace where Obi-Wan's like, don't tell me we've picked up another pathetic life form. Like, it's this sarcastic, dry, very almost British type of sense of humor, right? This yeah. Feels no, I, like I, I think you're right. British is a good way to put it. Slapsticky, yeah. you know, American 
style. I mean, Finn running around in a back-to-suit thing, leaking almost naked, like all that stuff just doesn't feel like it fits into Star Wars because that's not the kind of thing that Star Wars does for humor. Like, you know? Um, so, yeah, I was I was very much with you that it it did feel... And I felt like you nailed it. It kind of felt like Thor Ragnarok-ish. Um, and and I, I was really struck by, you know, going kind of going back to what Gareth Edwards said when he was making Rogue One. And he said, you know, there's a fine line in Star Wars. If you go slightly to the left, it's not Star Wars. It's just another sci-fi movie, and it doesn't feel right. If you go slightly to the right, you're just kind of copying what George did. So you have to navigate this thing whether it's new but it feels fresh and it's like a dance between the process of making a film and and i i feel like this dance led them over the line of the humor feeling like it fit into star wars um now yeah i will is we have i think both in previous places dinged having like the opie fart in uh the Phantom Menace completely unnecessary and ridiculous. Yes, I completely agree. Yeah. So and, I mean, and I'm not I, just I picking that here. I can yeah. pick different places, you know, in in Lucas's own work. So, it, but that was kind of few and far between when it came to the humor. Just like, just I don't know, going too far. Um, I know you're a huge fan of the music, as am I, of John Williams and in Star Wars. So I wanted to ask you what you felt about. The Last Jedi's uh, score. This is dangerous territory. Because the only word that I can think of is... You know what? I won't use the only... I won't use that. I will say that the word that I think of is uninspired. I did not... And I think I sent this to you uh, via text the following morning. That this is the first Star Wars movie where I, the following morning, after having seen it, I wasn't playing the soundtrack on my headphones while I was at work. I was playing other soundtracks and other music that I could work to, and I think that probably is my judgment in a nutshell. Yeah, you know, um, I I like the soundtrack, but I feel like... And, and there are places, there's a couple places, um, there's one moment where they're walking through the Jedi Temple, the first Jedi Temple, and there's a, a, a slight motif that, that you got uh, in the Camino mystery. Um, there's some motifs like that that he throws in from the, uh, specifically I heard a few of them from uh, uh, Attack of the Clones, which I thought was cool. I I didn't feel like there was any place here where he really tried to create something new. Um, it actually kind of reminded me of the Rebels Season 1 soundtrack in the sense like it's kind of like a greatest hits. Um, and of course he used the new themes he created in, in The Force Awakens but you know, and, and that's great. I, I it's not necessarily I have a problem with that. It it just there wasn't anything else new here that really stood out. Like, oh man, that's a that's just a gorgeous new theme. 
I don't know. I, I just, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I was kind of, I don't hate it or anything, and I've, I've enjoyed listening to it. I've been listening to it a lot, just trying to acclimate myself to it. But there isn't a track that specifically stands out to me. And we're like, like I remember even the Force Awakens. We kind of talked about at the beginning not being thrilled by it. But I could listen to Ray's theme and the Scavenger track and be totally transported with a beautiful new Williams creation. You know, and yeah. I don't feel like this one just has that. So that's kind of disappointing. Um. Yeah, uh, last but not least, I just wanted to ask you, because we dinged The Force Awakens for its ship design uh, and not really feeling Mm -hmm, fresh, mm -hmm, and this mm -hmm. one has a a couple new ships in it. We see, you know, Kylo Ren's new fighter, um, the ship that DJ and and BB-8 steal. Um, You've got... um, the the new flying wing for Snoke the mm-hmm. the bomber for the resistance uh anything stand out to you really liked or thought like oh that's nice that's a great addition to Star Wars uh you know I I liked the crate speeders I thought those were cool probably a little skewed because those center fins had the big red plumes I thought that was such a nice visual yeah. element um so I liked those I liked Kylo Ren's Tie Fighter if that's what it is, or Kylo Ren's personal ship. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I I did. I, I really liked that a lot. And the rest of them, I was okay with. I didn't think anything was really great. I mean, I thought the Canto Bite, like, police speeders were interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, just those, like, little personal copters sort of thing. Liked it. But, you know, eh, you know, overall, it was all right. It wasn't wasn't terrible wasn't phenomenal it was it was was okay yeah i i thought like the the resistance bomber was kind of a strange thing in general um looked like a nebulon b frigate in miniature yeah uh yeah um which is not bad or anything it just i don't know it was it was a very strange ship and and bombing in star wars in space seems kind of like a strange thing to be doing anyway um the mechanics of it, like when she opens the bay doors and then she's just standing there, I'm like, it, is there a shield around the ship that's allowing her to breathe? Like, I guess so. I'll just, I'll just pretend there is. Uh, you, know? you know, I don't worry about that. You know, the the, the Death Star's electromagnetic field or whatever. You yeah. know, the Falcon it looked like space behind it, so it was fine. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I mean, I, I and and I don't know. The, the flying wing, I don't know. It, it didn't really. I, I was like, eh, okay. It's it just looks big and and like I don't know. I I feel like sometimes the ships are getting so big that it's just it's too big to just not be kind of ridiculous. At some point, like it's like how I get how do you even? It's like the Death Star. Like when you start to really think about building a Death Star, it seems a little bit insane. Um, but this, it's like this ship is so big. How would you crew this? Where would you get the materials? Like I just start to think about that because all the ancillary materials talked about building the Death Star, and then I don't know. It just it it didn't. I was like, I like the Executor much better. So, uh, um, you know, story wise. I remember reading a thing before the movie came out that the that Snoke's flagship was so large that they had their own manufacturing plants. Like you see yeah. Kylo Ren standing there 
And I thought that was intriguing, but I didn't really see it too much in play. So I always consider it, I will always consider it as sort of like it's a side side thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like I, I remember reading The Force Awakens, the the art of The Force Awakens, and seeing some of the discarded, you know, reimagined Star Destroyer designs that they had and thinking, wow, I wish they had gone with this. And I, I honestly regard that big flagship as a missed opportunity because they could have gone back to The Force Awakens and said, you know what, let's get really weird with this. Let's make this super cool looking. And instead, it's it's a B-2 bomber. And it's like, eh, okay. Yeah, it it is kind of weird. So um, I guess, uh, you know, there's so many more things we could talk about, John, but I, I guess it really comes down to, you know, with the uh, experiences and everything that we've talked about, where do you come down here kind of ratings-wise for The Force Awakens for The Last Jedi yourself? I have gotten out of, and I drove several people uh, a little batty with this when we did our, our Rogue One discussion, but I have gotten out of the habit of giving a, a an initial review of, of a star rating. Mm-hmm. What I can, what I will say, what I can say, what I prefer to say, is that there's enough in the Last Jedi that, as a franchise fan, I can go in and I will find a way to love this film. I will find a way to work it into the tapestry of everything. I can also say that, as a dispassionate film fan, there are certain structural issues that I will never be able to resolve Mm -hmm. and that I will have to continually consciously look past for the sake of enjoying it and accepting it as part of the family. I can say that, like I said, as we're having this conversation, I've only seen the film once. There's only one other time that it's happened where I've gone this many days without seeing a second showing and it was the Clone Wars. And that's just because it was a very busy time in my life. I still managed to see it a second time in the theater, if I recall correctly. And that is one that I, I really enjoyed and was surprised by. Whereas with this, I this is the first time I've gone this long without going back to the theater to see a Star Wars film. I didn't pre-buy a, a ton of tickets because I said... I want to see how I feel about this before I go back. And I, it's disorienting. It's weird that I haven't like begged the wife or said, you know what? I'm going to stay out really late and I'm going to go to a late showing. and I'm going to see it a second time. Even force awakens. I, by the time we're recording this, I'd seen it twice and would have been seeing it my third time tomorrow from this recording. I don't have plans on the docket to see this a second time yet. I don't know what that says. What about you? Uh, you know, it's interesting because you were talking about the idea of like, you know, you didn't have a ton of tickets. And, and so uh, we have some good friends that we've made here and, and we plan to go see it, you know, Thursday night with them. And then, you know, with a, with with a Star Wars movie, and I know I'm going to be doing the 602 Club and and... You know, we do aggressive negotiations together, and and 
I always like to try and be able to have uh, at least two showings under my belt so that I can really feel like I confidently understand the film um, just for my own personal sake. And, and I, you know, I maybe I'm... Um, a, uh, maybe I'm a little like Luke and a little arrogant in the sense that I I, I don't like to be seen as not knowing what I'm talking about, <laughs> you know. Um, so I'll admit that. And and I you know like this this weekend, uh, I got the art of book and and the visual dictionary, and I read through both of those things so I could have a better understanding of them making the film, and so I could just kind of try and get my mind around this movie because I, first night I looked at my friends and I was like, what if it sucks? And they're like, don't be morbid. It's not going to suck. You know, uh, and it's, we all, I only went to a third showing because Fandango sent me a thing where they basically gave me up to $40 to spend on Fandango. And so I got, you know, a third showing in, and then I went with my brother-in-law, and we saw it together. The second showing did help change some things. It it, it gave me the 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 viewpoint on Ray, which really. F- I remember when we talked about the Force Awakens, and you said you had to find your way in. You know, you had to find that chink in the armor that let you into the film. Well, that that thematic element was my chink in the armor to kind of let me into to the Last Jedi. But like you, I'm still struggling with, I'm still struggling with Luke personally. And our conversation helps here. I think you guys made some great points that actually helped me kind of be able to, okay, I can, I can understand. It's just that momentary weakness, but then he really pays for it. And okay. Um, but I'm also really struggling with the dumbness of the resistant storyline and how, as we talked about, none of it really makes any sense until they get to crate. Um, and then the movie takes off, you know? And so it's like, there are so many, I, I think, poor choices in this film uh, and, and making it um, and, and, and not letting us behind the curtain on certain story points plot points like we talk with with Snoke and all of these things to give us some real depth you know like remember the first time you saw Empire Strikes Back and how it's just a deep dive into everything that you kind of loved about the A New Hope like everything that you kind of wanted to know more about we just dive in deeper with and I feel like Attack of the Clones kind of did that too we just dove in completely to that story then you know like this one, I feel like, attempts a deep dive, but it belly flops. And yeah. it's kind of a, fr- it, it's a real frustration for me. Now, I, there are things that I love about the movie. You know, I love uh, Luke at the very end. I love Rey and, and Kylo taking on the Praetorian guards. That's one of the coolest scenes, you know, especially when she tosses in the lightsaber and he yeah. just ignites it and goes right through that dude's head. I mean, there's some yeah. awesome stuff in here. Um, I've gone back and forth with like a number rating, and and right now where I'm at, it may change because it it went from a two point seven five to a three point five, and now it's just back to three out of five. 
and it's probably yeah it yeah it on a, any given day it's between 2.75 and 3 you know depending on how much those issues kind of bother me so i don't know uh that's and it's frustrating you know it's kind of like you said i I, I still enjoyed watching it the second time, though, and I still enjoyed watching it a third time, and it's almost like I kind of have to turn my brain off to enjoy it in a lot of places, and I don't really like feeling like I need to turn my brain off to enjoy Star Wars because as we both love doing, we love mining Star Wars for all that it has to offer, and I still think we've got plenty to do that with this movie, and hopefully throughout the years the movie will continue to grow on me, um, but you know, I, I'd say too, it, it, it's kind of like for me at the, with the force awakens where it's like between like, it's the worst film or then, you know, the second to the worst film. I don't know, you know? So, and I never thought that that would be the case. Cause I thought that this movie was going to be the one in the trilogy that w- could possibly be the best of all of them. I can say that I am transported uh, through this film to the prequel era because it seems to me that the discussion out of the gate has been a little bit toxic and it is weird because I think that we've been down this road before and it's tough and I think that probably deals a lot with why I am hesitant to give like final verdicts out of the gate and stuff like that. It's just, it's just that thing where we can't even talk about, I I'm very, you know what though? I'm very great. I'm not going to go down that road. I'm going to say that I'm very grateful to have been on this show with you and Bruce and you know, for other friends out there that I've had healthy conversations with about where we agree and disagree about this film. And I hope that I hope that episode nine is so amazing yeah. <laughs> that yes. it's that it elevates episode eight and by by extension fills in all the gaps for episode seven and completes the circle. And at the end of the day, we all walk away and we say, you know what? This was all worth it. This was all worth yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and, and I want to say that, too. Like, I really appreciate, um, Bruce, I know you're gone, and so hopefully you'll be listening to this. And I want to say to you, I love you coming into this show and being somebody who really liked the film up the front more than John and I and having that conversation back and forth with us. None of us is yelling at each other. We're all just, we're here for the love of Star Wars because we really do love this stuff. And we're all trying to come to terms with the things that may frustrate us or, or annoy us or any of those kind of things because we love it, not because we want to tear it down. Like nothing we've said here has been to tear anyone down or Ryan Johnson or in any of those things like they love Star Wars like we do, and they may have made choices that we might not have, but our our role here as fans for you listening to the 602 Club is we hope that um, we've helped you process and think about things. And again, if you love the movie, that's phenomenal. I, I think that's great, and I, I don't want to take anything away from you in that um, uh, because you know, that, and, that's not what we're here to do. And, and join in the discussion. 
talk with us about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Is there something we're not seeing? Is there yeah. something you see that we don't? We're to- I, I hope this conversation illuminates the fact that we're totally open to that. Yeah, absolutely. Because I would, as you and Bruce were able to help me see some things about Luke that I didn't for myself, I think I want other people to be able to illuminate the film in a way that maybe I didn't see it. So I can see it in a light that makes me enjoy it even more. And that, and that's what the 602 club is all about. And I love that we got to do this, John. I'm so thankful that we have associate producers through Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson who make this possible each and every week. They have been with the show almost since the beginning, supporting us through Patreon Trek FM's a huge network. There's no way we can do this without them. Um, th- there's just too many costs involved with bringing the quality shows that we do each and every week to you without any ads. So Patreon is the way you can support the network to make sure that keeps coming to us. Um, it's patreon.com slash trekfm. You can see all the details there. Every little bit helps a month. And uh, we have lots of different ways we like to give back to you. So check that out. See how you can help the network and be part of our team. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, John, brother, I love uh, having you in the 602 Club. Uh, Star Wars is what brought us together as friends, and it's made us, I think... uh, I don't know. I feel like you're, you know, just a brother from another Twi'lek. And so um, where can everybody find you online if they'd like to talk to you a little bit more about Star Wars and everything else that you're doing? Oh, well, gosh, you can look me up. I'm Castle Junkie on your social network of choice. Uh, You can find me over on the Nerd Party Network co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations with you, Matt, and co-hosting Great Shot Kid with Mike Schindler. And then back here on Trek FM, you can find me co-hosting... Uh, stage nine with Mike Schindler, and you can find me co-hosting out there in the ether, Words with Nerds, with my pal Craig. You can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02. I'm on Instagram under the same name. I'm here on the network talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine with Chris Jones. Uh, We just released a new episode, which has been a while, so hope you'll check that out. You can find me on the Nerd Party Network, also doing... Owl Post with Drea Kaufman as we walk through each and every chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. It's a lot of fun, so check it out. And then last but not least, you can find me on Cinema Stories with my pal Courtney as we talk all about film through the lens of faith and kind of talk about those morals, meanings, and messages and all that. So I hope you'll check all that out. And thank you so much for joining us, and may the Force be with you.